Hello and welcome to the 250, your fortnightly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And finally this week, completing our long-delayed Francis Ford Coppola season. Only one year behind schedule, which I think beats the uh, de- production delays on the movie we are discussing today, which is Apocalypse Now. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, thank you, Darren. How are you this morning? I, I, I'm good, I'm good. I, I appreciate that I arrived, like, late to last year's podcast recording. We had to shut down so you could, like, narrate the events of Apocalypse Now to me in order to bring us all up to speed. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, every day that we're not recording this podcast, I get softer. I'm, you know... While other podcasts are, 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 are there um, releasing weekly. <laughs> That's when I knew those podcasts would, would win. That's... Yeah. Um, but yes, so we're joined for this discussion by two fantastic guests. First of all, returning from our Godfather Part 2 episode, the wonderful Brian Lloyd. How are you, Brian? How you doing? Fantastic. And the wonderful Alex Towers. How are you, Alex? Not too bad. Glad to be here. All right. Well, just very briefly, because this is a couple of season. Coppola is like one of the great American filmmakers. He's one of the directors who occupies a very, 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 very high place on this list. I think the three films that are on the list, which is Godfather, Godfather 2, and Apocalypse Now, all sit snugly within, I think, the top 60, if not the top 50 movies of all time. So, Alex, what's your relationship to Coppola? Um, Like a lot of people, I think he's one of those directors when you start getting into film you know, you identify him pretty early on as uh, someone who's worth working through all the films. And he's such an interesting filmmaker because I think everyone probably watches The Godfathers first and think this is incredible. And then so many more of his his films, they they kind of get stranger and stranger um, as his sort of career develops. And I think for a while, you know, especially with some of the, the 90s films, which I'm sure we'll mention, you kind of start thinking like, yeah, I mean... This is so sad, but at a certain point, um, like I, I saw a live musical performance of Twixt in New York in like 2011, and it was extremely bizarre and extremely strange. But part of me was like, I actually kind of love that he's um, making these kind of films still, you know, even though I didn't like the film itself. And the the recent news that he's, you know, using all of his like amassed wine money to, to make this long gestating um film megapolis is that the name or metropolis yeah yeah i can't wait i will be first in line so um and this is a particularly interesting film i think of coppola's because um obviously the godfather films are incredible and conversation and all these sort of big rich worthy drama and then this still kind of i think retains so much of its sort of off the wall surrealness and it's it's the film that only coppola i think could make i don't think anyone else any other version of this film that i'm sure we'll talk about the george lucas versions the the uh, the comedy versions the the versions shot in northern california no like none of those really would work in the way that you know that the, the coppola version works so yeah he's a incredibly interesting filmmaker and not one who just sort of like has made some of the most incredible films of all time and is sort of this rich stage all reputation he's still out there he's still screaming at production assistants somewhere about something not being right and yeah I have no choice but to stand. So. Oh, I mean, like, it's great that, like, Megapolis seems to be having the same sort of production difficulties that Apocalypse Now did, where you have stars walking yeah. off, the budget completely overblowing, and it's kind of yeah. heartwarming that it, Coppola is still Coppola. Every one of those stories that comes out, it's like that Vince McMahon meme for me. I'm like, oh, whoa, wow, wow, <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> um, and, like, you mentioned seeing Twixt. Ref- like, refresh my memory, because Coppola's kind of 
films in the 2010s are all kind of experimental. Is Twix the one that he edits in real time as you watch it? There was one that he took as a roadshow and he would cut in real time in yeah. response to the audience. Yeah, and there was um, a guy called Dan Deacon uh, who was doing the music and he I liked him. He was like from Baltimore, so I remember hearing and I didn't even know it was Coppola. You know, I was going along because Dan Deacon was there doing the music and then I was like, wait a minute, that's his <laughs> Coppola? And it was a mess. To be clear, it's not worth you know tracking down or watching because it's it's such uh experimental mess but it's also kind of an, an admirable mess or something um kind of similar to apocalypse now in, in certain in certain portions so yeah i uh huge big fan of of francis ford coppola i'm not going to defend every one of his films because not a lot of them are great but uh yeah he's he's out there he's out there doing it and as i say huge fan and i actually and i'm sure we'll get into this as well with all the the versions I actually think he's one of the best filmmakers for revisiting a work um, and actually creating a, a better version of, of the original one. Like, I think a lot of people talk of director's cuts and things. I actually think he's he's got that down. And for a lot of personal reasons to do with him personally, I think um, yeah. his final versions actually do tend to be very, very good and very comprehensive. And like the actual final version, not the yeah, I was about to say. Scott director's cut DVD version or the Oliver Stone. I'm just going to put all the deleted scenes back in version. He's actually got comes at it as a as a storyteller again. So, yeah. Um, and Brian, like you were on Godfather Part 2. Yeah. I remember reaching out to you and it was like, Brian, would you like to talk about what is canonically one of the best movies ever made? Godfather Part 2. And you were like, sure, I'd love to do that. But you specifically asked, have you got anybody talking about Apocalypse Now yet? Um, so what was it that made you want to shoot your shot for this movie? That you were like, I'd love to talk about Godfather Part 2, but Apocalypse Now is what I really want to talk about. Um, it's pretty much the reason why I, this and Almost, Fam- Almost Famous are the reasons why I became an f- arts journalist and a film journalist. was because I saw Apocalypse Now and then Heart of Darkness very, very young. And too young, probably, to probably grasp half of it. But it would, there are two films that I would come back to again and again and again to kind of like remind myself, oh yeah, okay, so this is it. This is why, this is like the source. Everything about Apocalypse Now I love. I love the music. I love the cinematography. I love the performances. I love the way Martin Sheen just absolutely hurls himself at the screen. I love the fact that Marlon Brando turns up for like 10 minutes, really, and... <laughs> Blows everybody out of the water, even though he's just kind of completely talking out of his, you know what? I love it all. I just, I, I am obsessed with it. There is just, there's no one particular reason why I, I was like, oh, I've got to talk about this. It just, you know, man, it was just, it was just like, it, this whole thing was a journey. Like it was just, it was an electric cable that just plugged right into this podcast. I had to do it. You know what I mean? And like I've spent the and that I've, journey that you took up river, yeah. exactly. This entire year, I've just been like you know reading bits, the <laughs> bits on the film, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm passing a younger version of myself, going, "I loved you on Wall Street." <laughs> <laughs> just exact a line that Andrew quoted exactly as we were watching this movie last night. <laughs> yeah, uh, and again, like it's worth noting that the impact of this movie, the reach is so great that while I was doing research for it, I discovered that like Hot Shots Part Two, the film that we're referencing there, where you have Charlie and Martin Sheen riffing on their Vietnam movie. Um, you have like a, a mockumentary for that that aired on HBO to promote the film called We're Sorry, oh, yeah. The Art of Darkness, uh, a filmmaker's hot shot. 
um, which was like it, it had so permeated popular consciousness that they were spoofing the, the documentary about the making of this movie, which is fascinating. But Alex, do you remember the first time you saw Apocalypse Now and specifically what version? I do. Yeah, I, I um, like I sort of said, you know, I, I think I was early secondary school getting into film and they when they they, they seem to have those big um, I can't remember exactly what year the Redux came out. Would it be 2001, like, I think. 2001 because they did like full page paper uh, page ads in the newspapers like fully kind of you know and and touting the cast as well which yeah. to an 11 year old would have been like wow harrison ford's in this one. and yeah. harrison, harrison ford, ford. <laughs> yes Lawrence fishburne from the matrix in any real sense yeah um so i actually you know did that thing and i had a, a series of christmases as a, a horrible teenage boy where I would ask for some, you know, weird film for Christmas and then spend my Christmas watching it alone while my family were all, you know, watching something much more wholesome downstairs. Apocalypse Now is one of these films. So I have this memory of having to stop my journey up the river um, and go downstairs and eat turkey and be merry and being like, gosh, I need to get back upstairs and see what happens with those Playboy bunnies and stuff. So it was, <laughs> it was the Redux version and it was incredibly long. And yeah, I think, I don't think I understood much of it at the time, but I think the, the length of it and the, the sheer scale of it and everything certainly made an impact. But like you said, this is a film that kind of exists um, almost everywhere outside of the film in pop culture. There's so many references to it. You know, there were so many scenes and things like the Simpsons and stuff that I would have been watching and being like, Oh, that's where they're doing it from. And it's, it's so odd because it's such a powerful film. It's just permeated um, everywhere. And, and there's that old, that, that sort of overused expression about like the avant-garde becoming the wallpaper of the future. I think that's this film, you know, and, and scenes like the Ride of the Valkyrie scenes and everything are everywhere to the point where you can't even really maybe remember how or why or what the context for the, the, the original is. So it's an incredibly interesting film. I, I watched it again in my 20s and had a bit more time. And then... Um, a few years ago, I went to the final cut in the lighthouse uh, where half the cinema fell asleep because it was so warm in the like lower <laughs> screen. But that was the one that I, I remember kind of, yeah, standing up like Tony Soprano in The Simpsons in the desert and being like, I get it. I, I get it now. This is good. Um, and since then, I, I, you know, watched a few of the other versions. For this, I watched the I, I went back to the Redux version and uh, and watched that again. Having But I, I think having seen... The 1979 cut, the uh, Redux, and the final cut. That's my point. I think the final cut is the best version. And the, I think the French scenes that we'll get into, very necessary, but not necessary to the extent that in the Redux version. Um, and I think it's the most cohesive, the, the best version. Yeah. And Brian, you mentioned like this as a, like an almost famous, like, again, activation. Formative. Your, formative. Yeah. Do you remember how you first saw it? Where you first saw it? Did you first see yes. the Redux version? Which version was it? No. Oh. I saw the v I saw a CIC VHS video when I was like 10 years old. So this would have been like 1991, 1992, I want to say. Yeah. Um, it was an ex neighbor had it. They worked for this um, video leasing company and they used to just get like loads of films. Um, they used to like import them from the UK and they'd kind of get them in really, really good nick and... You know, and my next door neighbor, it was his older brother was obsessed with it because he was really into the doors, you know, and he put it on and we play and we were just kind of like floating around in the background. Of course, like, you know, being like, you know, nine, ten years old, you're playing G.I. Joe, you know, and I lived just near an army base as well when I was 
young. I lived in the Cork camp when I was a kid. So I was automatically associating Apocalypse Now with Vietnam, with the Irish Army, with all of it. So we were kind of surrounded by it. Like, But then, yeah, then it was like, <laughs> then we'd go like, I'm Colonel Kurtz, I'm Colonel Kurtz. You know, playing army when you're kids or whatever. Of course, not really understanding any of it or whatever. But then, like uh, like Alex, I saw um, Apocalypse Now. I saw the, I bought the Redux version um, when it came out in 2001. And that's like, again, like Alex, I was getting really into film. I was like, oh yeah, I remember watching this when I was a kid. And again, spending like three hours locked in a sweaty room, just like soaking it all in and just being like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is everything I could do. Oh, this is so incredible. Um and yeah, and, and like, yeah, I mean, I remember like seeing it when I was young and even then kind of realizing that, I mean, I suppose like my, my, my kind of thinking of like, you know, epic films, if you like, you know, the biggest film I could think back then of was Batman, you know, uh, the 1989 Batman. Yeah, the 89 Batman. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, that was the biggest thing I could I could think of. For some reason, I didn't see Star Wars until years later. Well, a couple of years later. But Batman was the biggest film I could think of. And then Superman was the biggest film I could think of. And then I saw Apocalypse Now. And Apocalypse Now was the biggest film I could think of. Because, you know, they had helicopters. And there was this. And there was that. And there was everything. Um, so, yeah. When I think of Apocalypse Now, I think of these massive films. But then I I, I saw Hearts of Darkness shortly before I saw the Redux version of it. And I was like, oh, my God. Francis Ford Coppola is an idiot. Like, he's just like... <laughs> I'm not maybe idiot is too strong a phrase, but like it's like oh my god, he he was actually insane. And this of course was before the internet, where you could just read everything about these films and learn yeah. everything about it. And you're kind of learning, oh my god, he actually went insane. That's so cool. <laughs> and then just seeing Redux, and it's like oh wow, I really see why he went cool. This film goes on forever. So yeah, it was kind of it was in stages. It was in stages, basically how it came to. It. And Andrew, what about yourself? Do you like? Had you seen this before we suggested covering it? Do you remember how you saw it? Have you seen any of the other versions of it? I have seen another version of it because I I think the part that you mentioned, the French section. Um, I watched this last year. It wasn't the first time watching it, and as I was watching it, I was like, I don't remember any of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was kind of like. This is uh, this is not how I remember the movie. There is this whole long section that, that I I just plumb forgot about, and yeah, that, that so that's obviously a different version of the movie. I, I, I watched like I remember last night. You were, you were you were you were you were, you were, you were like I'll 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 put on. I said was I wasn't like, going to subject you to the three and a half hour Redux version. Andrew's like, yay! And I was like, we're going to watch the three hour final cut. And he's like, uh-huh. Mm. And I'm like, I can't get access to it. I guess we're watching the theatrical. Yeah, and you were like, oh, we'll watch... No, the, yeah, at that point you reveal there's a two and a half hour version. I was like, so why did you suggest the three hour one? I know <laughs> you've seen all of the versions. You know what version I want to see. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be... Do I? <laughs> it's like, oh, this is a, this is a compromise. It's like, yeah. why, why compromise (laughs) why not just give me what i want (laughs) the shortest possible version of this movie (laughs) but yes okay so you had seen it before even before last year yeah yeah i think i would have seen it as a teen um or yeah yeah the yeah yeah um 
right. But yes, and, and for myself, again, I think I had that kind of film, like, nerd activation thing. I was at the right age when the Redux version came out in 2001, where I would have been, I think, 14, 15. And it was like, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I do think I got, like, the DVD or the, maybe even Blu-rays would have been kicking. No, it was DVDs at that point. I got the DVD at that point. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Because I was going through a phase where it was like, I was watching the Godfather movies. I watched the Godfather movies with my dad, which was like a really sweet father-son moment where he was like, mm. I remember 70s cinema. 70s cinema was great. And I'm like, 70s cinema is great. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, Apocalypse Now is one of those movies where I have this relationship to it where I'm never quite sure how much I love it, but I also can't stop thinking mm. about it. Yeah. Where I find myself watching it and I'm like, I don't know if this is like, I don't, this exists almost beyond a realm of good or bad. Yeah. Um, this is just like transcendent. This is something that, you know, is in my brain and cannot get out of my brain. And I don't think I've ever seen anything else quite like it. And it, again, that, that's the weird thing where Andrew's like, why would you stick on the three hour version when you have the two and a half hour version? I'm like, it, it's all a dream state. I you, you stick it on and then it ends. Like you stick it on, you're in it for however long you're in it. And then it ends and it it's, you don't have a sense of time while you're in it. And Andrew's like, I have a very clear sense of time while I'm in it. Thank you very much, Darren. <laughs> but yeah, that is, it was a huge moment for me as a kind of a, as a film nerd. All right. And again, look, we probably don't need to go too much into the production of this. Everybody knows that it was a massive disaster. But to begin with, I mean... Obviously, this was a long gestating idea. It begins, you know, with screenwriter John Milius, um, who had been, he'd applied to serve in Vietnam. He'd been turned down because of asthma. Um, he is a famous, uh, famously right-wing filmmaker with very strong, very, very strong nationalist opinions, very, very strong opinions about the war in Vietnam and how, again, the the army was somewhat stabbed in the back. It, you know, Milius's argument is that we didn't lose Vietnam in Vietnam. We lost it on the college campuses and all this sort of stuff. And you have this idea that Lucas at some stage is going to make it. George Lucas, who we talked about, you know, one of the key figures of the movie Bratz, the one who is perhaps closest to Coppola, like in terms of friendship, in terms of alignment, in terms of partnership. And Lucas is going to make it. The initial suggestion, according to like Walter Murch, is that that version would have been like shot in Sacramento. They would have shot in like rice paddies uh, in California and maybe done two or three days location shooting overseas to give a sense of like establishing shots. And again, Merch is like, there's no way to square Lucas's version of what this would have been to what it finally became because they exist so far outside the frame of reference for one another. Um, obviously, and apparently it was going to be like quite a comedy as yeah. well. Like we're going to really emphasize some of the more surreal stuff and like on 16 millimeter, like old newsreel yeah. footage, like a completely different film in almost every sense. So. Yeah. And I think that the issue was that like at that stage, Lucas was too successful. He'd made like American graffiti and was, you know, not not going to squander the kind of blank check that he had or the freedom that he had to go and make you know this kind of weird indie war film in like sacramento or in the forests or whatever around california and so you have uh you have obviously you have coppola who's coming off the success of like godfather part two and again we we kind of talked about it the godfather part two production tough in some ways easy in others but he was like look we we did a bunch of location shooting uh, like overseas for that uh i think the dominican republic and stuff like that and it's like that was easy so, you know, why don't we just take this gigantic project and actually shoot it on location? Because, like, the big appeal of this, uh, and we kind of, I think we talked about when we talked about Platoon, is that the Vietnam War was somewhat untouched in American popular consciousness at this point. The only real Vietnam film before this was, I think, was it The Green Berets, the John Wayne propaganda movie co-starring George Takei. Uh, the Vietnam War was this kind of thing that nobody wanted to talk about. 
So there was something kind of hubristic and exciting to Coppola about making not only the first Vietnam War movie, but making the Vietnam War movie. Now, ironically, um, it was because of the movie's production and post-production challenges, it was beaten to cinemas by both The Deer Hunter and by Coming Home. And I think, like, Coppola, again, Coppola, fascinating character, as Brian said, kind of maybe went insane. Um, but, like, when he's doing press for this, it's remarkable. Uh, Milius describes him as the Bayside Mussolini. During production, the cast and crew referred to him as Ayatollah Coppola. Mm-hmm. Um, and during the press tour for this, he would, like, take pot shots at the other movies, like Coming Home and The Deer Hunter, where he's like, The Deer Hunter is not really a Vietnam movie. It's fine. Not really a Vietnam movie, though. It's also very funny because he apparently wanted to, well, decided to make this because he was like, well, I'll make a big splashy hit for um, Zotrope and that'll let me fund all my interesting weird films. And then the idea that, like, you know, six months in, he's like, okay, I'm going to have to mortgage all of my houses for 26% in order to, you know. And apparently at one point realized, like, you know, they'll probably say no, but I, I'll go. And he went to the Department of Defense and yeah. gave uh, Rumsfeld a copy of the script like <laughs> any chance you can give us some Hueys and they were like obviously not you know, get the hell out of here but so yeah I, I just admire the the that that descent to madness they're like I'm going to make a big splashy war picture like the deer hunt it's going to get a load of Oscars and then the like slow progression to oh my god what do you mean Marcos is you know has to fight a front with all my helicopters or actually my favorite one of the ones bad one but um when he was doing the 2019 cut there's a great interview Soderbergh gives with him and he says um (laughs) something crazy like one of the things I'm so proud of is that we didn't lose one person and then he says oh no wait actually we did we did lose someone someone did die but it was extraordinary that only one person died (laughs) oh my god my brain is broken yeah (laughs) I mean, like, again, there are reports in, like, the Washington Post, like, from, like, 1977 through 1979, documenting this in real time, where, like, there's a famous story about, like, even before he went to, you know, the Philippines to shoot this, where he was trying to get, like, James Caan, Robert Redford, Al Pacino, Steve McQueen to make this. And, like, I love that Al Pacino, who got, like, food poisoning in the Dominican Republic, making Godfather Part Two, he was like, yeah, come to the Philippines, nothing bad will happen. And Al Pacino's like, no, I... I, I've worked with you internationally before. I know how this works. Remember how you didn't die that last time? <laughs> yeah, like, I promise you. <laughs> Let's do that again. Yeah, you won't die again this time. Um, but like of the Oscars, like during pre-production, during an argument over like Robert Redford and James Caan saying no to appearing in the movie, he threw the five Oscars that he'd won for The Godfather, Godfather Part Two, and The Conversation <laughs> through a window of his Napa Valley home, breaking four of them. Which is, again, even so, before you're going overseas. So he picked them up one at a time. <laughs> yeah, I don't imagine he bundled them. <laughs> yeah. And did he only have I, um... four windows? Or, or... <laughs> or did they go through the same window? Yeah, did he throw one of them through? Yeah. <laughs> and then he was like a committed The question I want to know. He picked up his five Oscars and threw them. It's like, how many arms does he have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like... I do like how many how many Oscars does Francis Ford Coppola like, have? This whole yeah. process, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a there's a scene actually where Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now, I think it's when his surf you know the surfing doesn't go his way and <laughs> and he has a megaphone or a radio or something and he goes God damn it and he like whips the radio into the ground and smashes it 
apparently that was Duval just doing Coppola because Coppola would smash these Motorola radios, but they were like $2,500 each. And eventually a production assistant would have to literally just hover near Coppola when they knew something was going to go wrong and dive in the way of this expensive radio that he would inevitably throw. And the idea of like, I mean, it's Coppola's money to an extent, so if he wants to <laughs> smash the radios. But the idea of having to, like, babysit this megalomaniac and have someone, like, be his, you know, tam- temper tantrum radio catcher. And he's just like, oh, no, he will throw those radios. There's nothing we can do to stop the radios being thrown. What we can maybe do is catch some of them, though. Just incredible. Um, he actually had a quote there where he said, the auspices in which I made this film were very much like the way the U.S. went to Vietnam, which is very <laughs> telling or something, very self-knowing, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like, I mean, isn't that the the arrogant statement that he made, like, when he went to Cannes with, again, because this movie had such bad press around it, he had to take an unfinished cut to Cannes. And it won, like, shared the palm door, that unfinished cut of it, which is quite remarkable. Which is the worst thing to happen for someone's ego, you know, (laughs) to be, like, forced to bring this along. And then everyone would be like, this is the best film ever made. And he's like, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) We're going back. I'm going to destroy even more megaphones. (laughs) It's the megaphones that... Did it. But like, but like that back from Can, all of his equipment is covered in like inflatable, uh, <laughs> just like uh, just uh, balloons, cushions, yeah. yeah, cushions tied to them. But like, he went to Can and he was like, you know, this film isn't about Vietnam. This film is Vietnam, which I think is the opening quote of like Heart of Darkness, the documentary. Yeah. Um. But Brian, like, before we move off the production, like, are there any particular stories that you love about the making of Apocalypse Now? I mean, Alex, kind of, you, you've kind of covered them all. The one thing that I will say that I, I, every time I, I see it either on TV or if I, if it comes up on Netflix by, by random choice or whatever, is the episode of Community, where they're trying to make the, um, the student film, uh, like the kind of the promo film for, uh, for the, for the community college, and Jim Rush just progressively becomes more and more like Francis Ford Coppola. (laughs) You see him like growing out a little beard and then he's walking around in like a a vest and then he just loses the vest. (laughs) He just, like he's getting more and more angry and then it's like you have down at the bottom the little counter for how much, how many hours they've spent on the film like in Hearts of Darkness. And then you have Abed (laughs) running around talking about like, you know, Hearts of Darkness is actually better than Apocalypse Now. And everyone's like, really? <laughs> but um, yeah, like that's like, I think that of all the parodies, that's the one that I always go back to. And it's like, that's so perfect. Like you can see Jim Rash as well. Like he's just like, if you watch Jim Rash and that, and then you can watch Hearts of Darkness, you can see that he like has just studied it so much. And he's got the real kind of like droop and walk. And it's like, you're <laughs> when he confronts Jeff or something. And he's like, what is it? He says, you're fake. You're being fake or something like that. And he walks <laughs> off and just says nothing else. Something like that. It's just, yeah. Like, I mean, I think when you think of like megalomaniac directors, I think I think y- you can't go to anything else but this. But it's fascinating. Like, I find like looking at, and this is just, you know, kind of a tangent, but why not? Like when you look at somebody like Sofia Coppola, who clearly, you know, obviously grew up on his sets, she does everything the exact opposite. It's almost like, okay, I'm going to do nothing like that and I'm going to do the complete opposite. And, you know, like, I've, like I, you, you look at any of like, the background, or sorry, the behind-the-scenes stuff or something like even Lost in Translation or for Somewhere or for, you know, Virgin Suicides. Like, it's just... It's so lovely. It's so nice. Everyone's so happy. Like, I mean, I actually even she has follow... This thing- 
she says where she she doesn't say cut she just says okay thanks you can stop now um, yeah and i remember thinking like that's definitely versus the coppola i'm gonna smash a fucking radio over martin sheen's head because his eyebrow wasn't in the right place yeah like, yeah that's that's probably the exactly. reaction to that yeah like i even follow up i even follow a playlist of like songs that she plays on the set on the in the morning time and it's all these lovely like it's fleetwood <laughs> mac lovely. and Cool in the gang, and I play it like just when I'm kind of pottering around the kitchen. It's like, oh, this is so nice. I'm trying to imagine like what would Francis Ford Coppola have if he had Spotify back in the pot clutch now? Because like, I think it was like Oliver Stone did it when he was doing Natural Born Killers. He used to like blast like I think it was like Nepalese throat singing into like the speaker. Yeah, he used to like do all like this crazy stuff. Like he used to blast like throat singing to like get everyone like amped up and terrified on the set yeah. natural born killers. Yeah. So I was like trying to imagine like God, like what would what would Coppola play on the set of um the set of Apocalypse Now? Probably I just saw- the actual soundtrack, like <laughs> the screams of a water buffalo being yeah. slaughtered or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean I saw yeah. this um documentary about I think it was the making of Dracula, and I couldn't get over it even as like a I think I watched it as a teenager. Um because even as a teenager, it seemed unprofessional, you know, in my zero experience, <laughs> where he he would be screaming directions at the actors while they were acting. And he would so he'd be screaming at Winona Ryder, like, you're sad, you're heartbroken, now look up in the sky. And I remember thinking, like, you can't process that, those instructions and also do all those things. And, I mean, from some of the uh, stories um, that people have about being directed by Coppola, that makes total sense. But, uh, yeah, and it's that scene in, in Apocalypse Now where they're running past a news crew, which is actually played by Coppola. Uh, and he's screaming at them, don't look at the camera, keep going. <laughs> just keep going, just keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> but like, and, and again, you, you mentioned that, 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 again, we talked about this, I think, on, on Godfather 3. Like, there is a sense that maybe his yelling at Winona Ryder on, on Bram Stoker's Dracula was tied to kind of other stuff that had happened around, say, Godfather 3. And, yeah. and there was a particular reason why he yeah, was sure, yeah. aggressive towards that actor in particular. But yeah, I mean, like, you mentioned... It kind of have to talk about this in terms of the context of like New Hollywood, because this is like the apotheosis of like the New Hollywood movement, where like you have at the moment everyone thought this would be Heaven's Gate, but yes. it wasn't. This one was good, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like you you look at the production of this, and everybody, and you said it's like the worst thing that could happen to a director's ego, where it's like there's no way that this makes money, and like he's going to distributors when he wants a budget. I think initially he's like, okay, Godfather Two, we had it budgeted for nine million. It came in at 13 million, you know? So when we're making Apocalypse Now, we'll ask for a budget of 14 million and that'll give us lots of wiggle room. There's no way it will cost more than $14 million. Uh, the end budget ends up being $31 million. As you said, he has to mortgage his house several times over in order to afford this. Um, but like everyone's like, there's no way that this works. You're hearing all of the horror stories. In fact, like, again, during post-production, there's no sense of any of this working. Like very famously, the production is a nightmare. The post-production is somehow even worse, even though that's happening in San Francisco, <laughs> where you have like situations where there are four editors who are credited on the film, like Richard Marks, uh, Walter Murch, Gerald B. Greenberg, and Lisa Fruckman. But you also have people like, say, Dennis Jacoby, who is like this guy that Coppola has known from UCLA, who at one point gets so frustrated at how slow the editing process is going that he steals a reel of film. And, like, threatens to burn it. In fact, he burns a foot of film from the movie, mails it back to American Zootrope in an envelope. And I think, like, Coppola manages to renegotiate the return of that reel of film. And I have it here for a barbecue beef sandwich and a root beer. Mm. um, Is how he manages to talk him down from the ledge. But, like, 
Merch has said, you know, 700 days in post-production on this movie. An average of 1.5 cuts. Not 1.5 scenes. 1.5 cuts a day on this movie to get it ready for release. And everybody in Hollywood is like, this is... This is a disaster. There is no way that this movie is released and makes money. There's no way. This is the moment where Hollywood reckons with the fact that it has these movie brat directors who it's given too much freedom to, too much money to, and never really understood. And it comes out and it somehow makes like, again, box office figures hard to come by, but somewhere in the region of like 100 to $150 million. It makes five times its production budget, which is just incredible. Like, is this the the last hurrah of new Hollywood is is that fair to say and like is this the last gasp of a moment in Hollywood history so Alex or Brian yeah no I think definitely like I mean it was very much as you've you've said it all like it was the apotheosis of new Hollywood and I think you know when Heaven's Gate hit and just decimated decimated the idea of you know, these grand epics and all the rest of it. But I mean, I think like what I think is interesting about Apocalypse Now is, is that it was Coppola betting his own money. So no one was kind of standing over him saying, if you don't stop, we're going to take your money away. Whereas I think Michael Cimino had that a bit. Michael Cimino, it was more a failure of management, if that if that's the right word, because no one stopped him. Everyone just thought, well, Michael Cimino is a genius. And, you know, he directs from behind this veil of, of mystery and everything else. Just let him out of kind of thing. And no one stopped them. And yet, like, you know, you watch Heaven's Gate and it's a beautiful film. Like, okay, yeah, I can totally see why it failed. Totally get it. It's kind of like Barry Lyndon. Like, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. Nothing happens, but it's very, very pretty <laughs> to be around it. Um, whereas in Apocalypse Now, I think is kind of like, you know, Coppola was betting his own money. So everyone was kind of prepared to be like, to let him at it he he could do it as, as he could destroy himself if he wanted to and everyone was kind of like because you know it's hollywood everyone loves uh, a crash and burn story you know um but the fact that it the fact that it succeeded i think personally it ruined coppola and i'll explain that i think that any film he did after that i think it burned him so badly and i think he became so kind of twisted from it like he just descended into madness so much that when he came out the other side of it i don't think he could ever go back to any of that kind of massive film until now obviously with megalopolis and that's why i'm so excited to see it because i've just you know like like you were saying like every like terrible story like i'm glued to a variety in thr just waiting for another another big scoop just to be like oh yeah more, i worry it's more, gonna more. kill him like he'll <laughs> I worry too, yeah. be, i'd die on stage yeah and just i did it like fall backwards yeah I mean, like, I, I could, do you know something? I think, uh, this is terrible, but I think if that happened, that would just cement him and Megalopolis in history. That's it. Like, he just, like, drops dead on the final day. Kind of like Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut. But then again, he's got to do the edit and all the rest of it. But, um, but yeah, no, I think I think Apocalypse Now was the end of New Hollywood, more so than uh, Heaven's Gate, because I think... Again, it's that thing of like they went too far, they spent too much money, and they all went insane. And then after that, then they just couldn't do it again because it was just there was the burden of knowledge of how far they've gone and how how much they've wrecked and how they can't go back to us. Like, 
Yeah, I mean, Alex mentioned, like, having worked through uh, Francis Ford Coppola's filmography. It's kind of interesting that, like, you have this narrative that's kind of retroactively shaping over his 80s. And a large part of that is due to him, as we mentioned, going back and recutting movies like, say, The Cotton Club, for example. But, like, Alex, what, what do you think in terms of Coppola after Apocalypse Now? Like, where does he go? Where does Hollywood go? Like, is this the end? Is this the climax? Is this the peak? Is there anywhere you can go from here? Yeah, no, I, I think this is kind of to your point there about... Um the sort of like triumph of, of the new Hollywood era and, and all these incredible films that came out. This is kind of the apex, um, both for those kinds of films, but also I think Coppola personally and professionally and everything. And I think I'd imagine that there is some sense of, of that was too close to the edge. Cause it, it's one thing to, you know, and everyone's seen those pictures of him literally holding a gun to his head, you know, <laughs> on set. But when you, you think he's there with his young family yeah. and, you think he's there as well, having come off the streak that he came off and then seeing, like, I think what's always so fascinating to me is that he, he did have to go out and actually, you know, mortgage his own homes. You're talking about arguably the most successful film director in the world who, you know, you'd think that there'd be people in the world willing to sort of fund this kind of vision. But um, going to Brian's point, there is also a freedom in, you know, if it's my own money. And I think there is a a necessity like i don't think apocalypse now could have been made in any other way um than this way that being said uh i also think it was probably something that yeah kind of ruined coppola for <laughs> a long time not, not completely ruined like as i say he's still an incredibly interesting filmmaker but this was the the apex in many ways and and even though i would personally you know have other favorites of coppola's um i think this is the the best the greatest achievement he's sort of contributed to cinema this is the um this is the big one uh this what there's never going to be anything like this again the scale and scope of it what you were saying at the start brian about like being a kid and realizing the difference between just some of those shots where there's 10 helicopters landing in the background and there's something on fire in the foreground and you can't even process everything it's it's incredible and that goes to those comments that coppola himself talks about um about how he sort of amazed looking back retrospectively that he was able to to pull the whole thing off um and then also he, he sort of talks about and i watched the redux one with commentary which is really good i would, would really recommend that because he, he's so he is kind of like an old man with his feet up sort of you know reminiscing about this this crazy period of his life but he talks about making the film and, and not knowing where it was going being like I didn't have an ending I was painting myself into a corner yeah and as the film goes on he talks about I actually started realizing Willard was thinking in the film the same that I was thinking like how is this going to end where am I going you know how do I process any of this this surreality and that's I think actually what makes this film so incredible that there's a sort of loose jazz like quality to a film of such an incredible budget and incredible scale and scope the idea that you'd be going along and just something randomly would happen and he'd be like fantastic film that or something disastrously and he'd be like okay we'll just do it this way because we can't do it any other way like that scale of of improvisation um at this level it's probably never going to happen again and i think that's what makes apocalypse now such a compelling movie I mean, it, it is worth noting that, like, this is a point where Hollywood is in transition. You've had, like, 1941, you know, didn't flop. We've, we very, Spielberg would want us to be very clear that, like, 1941 did not bomb. 
It just didn't perform to expectations. But you have like New York, New York happening with uh, Scorsese as well. But you have Hollywood kind of moving in a different direction where it's starting to move. You know, we have the emergence of Jaws. You have the emergence of blockbusters. Star Wars came out two years earlier. Like one of the great things when you read contemporary press is you can see the narrative forming in real time. Where when Coppola initially pushes Apocalypse Now out, like the early press rumblings are, oh, he just doesn't want to compete with his good friend George Lucas's Star Wars at the Oscars. That's what he, it's, it's a nice, generous thing he's doing moving mm. this project out. It's not because he's behind schedule and over budget and having like a mental breakdown. Um, but like you have the year this comes out, you have the remake of King Kong with Jeff Bridges in it, for example. You have like Superman comes out. I think Brian pointed that as like one of the biggest movies like when you were a kid. And you have like Coppola, and again, Coppola ahead of the curve in many ways as a filmmaker right down to trashing comic book movies where like he's at Cannes in 1979 and he's saying you know why is it that I the first man to make a film about Vietnam a film about morality am so criticized when you could spend that much making a movie about a gorilla or a little jerk who flies around in the sky <laughs> um which I kind of like beating Martin Scorsese what? Little jerk, little jerk. Well, that gives you a sense of like. It feels, it feels like it doesn't really. That kind of doesn't land. <laughs> when you're talking about Superman, yeah, little jerk, little jerk. Um, but like you, you have the idea. Like again, the panic that was happening when it was released in in cinemas, uh, where for example, you know, they they released it slowly. They turned it into an event. Um, you know, they released it slowly in Toronto, New York, Los Angeles. Tickets were five dollars uh, a piece, which was again tiered pricing at the time, playing to full houses. But you had like they hired Jimmy Carter's social media consultant, uh, Gerald Rolfshoon, and pollster Pat Caddle to help figure out how to sell this movie to the American public. And I love that, like, it will be shown on a reserve seat basis at increased admission prices, and Cadwell's polling ranges from measuring the impact of Vietnam on potential audiences, and I love this, to finding out how many American moviegoers know the meaning of the word apocalypse. That's a sense of like where pop culture was in 1979, where it's like, is is this movie going to be feasible um, even two or three years after this? Like, you know, you're going to be in the blockbuster era. Are people going to want to turn out to see movies like Godfather 1, Godfather 2 anymore? It's it's kind of just so fascinating that it's the end, end of an era. Um, all right. So uh, before we talk about the movie in more depth, uh, just three questions to, to get us started. So, Brian... Do you think Apocalypse Now is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? A hundred percent, yes. A hundred percent, yes. I think for its uniqueness, I think for its subject matter, I think for the stories around it, I think for the fact that, I mean, what what version of the film deserves to be on the 250 is the, is the bigger question. Is it the redux? Is it the theatrical cut? Is it, you know, the work print version? Is it, you know, the George Lucas version in Sacramento? Who knows? <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, yeah, of course, yeah, it absolutely deserves to be on the two fifty. And you were saying it's up around the sixty mark. Yeah, it's up around fifty-ish, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 valid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it's breaking the thirty mark. I think it's like anything thirty between thirty and sixty. I think is roughly where I kind of place it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's less successful. Than, you can see why the Godfather movies are in the top ten. I think this is yeah. maybe a more challenging mm. work in some ways. Definitely, yeah, a hundred percent. It's not as accessible. Like, no, you can. You can totally see why um, why it's in that kind of thing. Because I do think it's it's well enough known that everyone be like, oh yeah, Apocalypse Now, the Vietnam film, yeah? And then 
you know, film nerds are like, no, 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 it's about, you know, <laughs> colonialism. It's about the end of America. <laughs> then it comes more on that. But yeah, it definitely deserves being the 250. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, to that point, like when we were in planning to do this last year, I watched all three cuts because of course I did. And I had to watch the Redux cut uh, when I was visiting my parents for a long weekend. And like my dad had watched The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2. I think we ended up watching The Godfather when it was on TV over Christmas just because it was on. And my dad what, looks at the screen recognizes apocalypse now goes that's a goddamn movie and then just walks out of the kitchen yeah like it's like yes i recognize that this is a monument of cinema but i have no interest in watching it again um but i yeah no i just just on that point i have desperately desperately tried to convince my wife to sit down and watch apocalypse now and she was like no that's like three like no like i can't like no i've got (laughs) to Well, we can do it in two nights. And I'm like, no, 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 you got to sit in it. you got to sit in it. you got to give it the full time. And it's, I, I, I'm repeating what you said previously, but like time goes out the window when you watch this film. Like, it's just, you're in it, man. You're in the shit. You know what I mean? You're in the shit when you're watching this. So, yeah. Uh, and Alex, what about yourself? Do you think this movie belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, this could be a movie that we could put in a, time capsule or fire into space as like you know this is this is a, a movie you know <laughs> this is what a movie should be everything else is kind of no it, it definitely should as a as, you know um as brian was saying earlier and i think as yourself it's a movie that i don't know if i could ever say i love because it's so um it's so surreal and i think it's it's so off the wall in places and it, it kind of can't be pinned down um and that's uh, even i think when people sort of say oh what Apocalypse Now is really about is this. I kind of think it's, but it's, it's too jazz. Like it, 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 even Coppola himself will it say, oh no, for the first half of the film, I thought I was making a different film. Second half, I was just, you know, filming what was in front of me at the, that exact moment. And I think it's incredible that such a cohesive and sort of like horrifying um, and compelling work has come out of that. Um, and for all those reasons, it should definitely be on the list of 250 um, greatest films of all time. But yeah, I also think that, you know, some of its weaknesses are there as well. I, I think there's no better indication than than Brando's lines, um, which are, are nonsense. And a lot of people go back and forth about whether or not they're nonsense. And I think the point is that, no, they're, they're nonsense. The point is that they're kind of this haunting, kind of off-putting, kind of terrifying nonsense. But I think that's kind of the film in a... A microcosm you know Coppola on the commentary track talks about how cinema is at its best when it expresses things without actually expressing them you know that you're you're talking to some higher truth without actually completely portraying it and I think this is that film there are discordant scenes scenes that don't really work even the fact there's three different versions and those three different versions tend to actually like I think especially the character of Willard does change a good bit if you watch the final cut versus the, the say the redux because the sequences like the playboy bunnies and stealing surfboards and stuff some of that is kind of showing willard to be a very different kind of character than the willard the that's in the final cut and is of the theatrical cut like so it's it's kind of fascinating for all those reasons but yes incredible film you know i agree with brian 100 percent. this needs to be on the the top 250 of all time um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Like, do you think this is one of the top two hundred and fifty movies ever made? Yeah, I, 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 I do because it's, 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 it's so um, iconic and mimetic, and the, the, the music 
um as well um of it not 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 just Ragnar but the 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 doors that we've kind of mentioned as well even the synth soundtrack from is it Carmine Coppola and Francis yeah. Ford Coppola yeah no absolutely it's very kind of a a a a, a it's kind of like reproduced kind of like all over the place I think in terms of Coppola it probably sits in the right place like below um the first two Godfathers the first two Godfathers in terms of Vietnam movies I would kind of put it. Uh, below Full Metal Jacket, probably put it above Platoon, I guess. So maybe. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a kind of maybe a question then for Platoon the is zone, a very, like... in some ways, kind of quite a conventional movie. Uh, um, yeah, I mean again, this is a question: Is this a Vietnam movie? Is this actually yeah. a Vietnam movie, or is it something completely different that just happens to use Vietnam as a backdrop for it? Which is again maybe an interesting discussion to have. Whereas I think that, yeah, I think a, I think something like Platoon is very straightforwardly a Vietnam movie. It's yeah. about Oliver Stone's experience of Extremely. Vietnam. Extremely, yeah, yeah. 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 Whereas this is maybe not that. Perhaps. And it's a big, if for Oliver Stone, I, th- I think it's a big enough thing for a movie to be about. Yeah. Whereas this is kind of, um, yeah, it's it's reaching into all sorts of kind of themes. I mean, like, we, we should note, by the way, that, like, this movie, like, the success of Platoon led to a re-release of Apocalypse Now, which is fascinating. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, like, in 1987, again, we mentioned, like, Platoon opened the gates to a whole spate of, like, Vietnam movies. Um, like, prisoners, like, casualties of war and, and kind of, you know, arguably even, like, say, Full Metal Jacket and stuff like that, which came out the following year. All this sort of stuff. And it's kind of fascinating that you have, like, the success of Platoon bringing Apocalypse Now back to theatres. Like that, like yeah. Apocalypse now ends up riding on the coast. This is a real movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and for myself, yeah, I think pretty indisputably. Like again, it it's that that thing where it's to quote my dad, "That's a real movie. That's a real goddamn movie." It is perhaps the most movie. Um, I I think that yeah, obviously, like New Hollywood is maybe somewhat overrepresented uh, on the two fifty. I think that you know there is a tendency within film fandom to overly fetishize that era, um, perhaps you know at the expense of earlier eras, like say the golden era or the silent era. Uh, but I do think that yeah, this is a hugely important movie, um, both in terms of the history of Hollywood, but also like in terms of what you can do with the medium. Like there are reasons why the shots from this like keep recurring. Why you will why and somebody who has never seen the movie knows the shot of Willard emerging like from the swamp. Uh, why they kind of know the shot of the water, sunlight reflecting on the water, all that sort of stuff. Why they know the shot of Brando in silhouette or the shot of Brando even just wiping water off the top of his bald head. Like, there's a reason why this movie, like, lingers in the consciousness even outside the context of being the most movie. There's a, a good scene in um in, in Sam Mendes' Jarhead. Um, Not the scene where they watch, literally watch Apocalypse <laughs> Now to get, like, prepped, which on the commentary track... Coppola says, because I think it was recorded around the time Jared was made, he's like, yeah, I've just got this request to use the scene. And he sort of talks about um, wanting to sort of be sure that like they understand the context of the scene. But then also as he's talking like, but that's not really the point, is it? I'll just give it to them like they can use it. <laughs> but there's a scene in Jarhead where Jake Gyllenhaal's, you know, over in, in Iraq and they're um, walking through the desert and a helicopter like zings past him and Peter Sarsgaard. And someone shouts, like, because the helicopter's blasting break on through by the doors. And someone shouts, that's Vietnam music. Why can't we get our own goddamn music? <laughs> and I kind of think that's Apocalypse Now. Like, for the next 30, 40 years of American 
pop culture and particularly like military intervention has been kind of like made in this concept of of like even <laughs> even when I think Trump had like Vietnam veterans over into the White House during his and he was you know he was referencing scenes from Apocalypse Now as if they were real scenes from the news you know and and okay that's Trump but like I actually think that does sort of talk about the degree it permeates, you know, the interpretation of that war, um, not only in, in the American psyche, but also the the, the the subsequent wars and the ongoing wars. And and you need this sort of like cultural touchstone to make sense of like, oh, right. Yeah, we're going to listen to the doors and we're going to ride in, around in helicopters, you know. I mean, like, it, it, like, just we will talk about the Vietnam of it kind of maybe in the spoiler zone, but like, it's worth acknowledging you have like Dale Dye, who's like a Vietnam veteran who worked on many of these productions. And he was asked, like, how does this rank in the Vietnam, like, frame of reference? And like Dale Dye's comment is, it's entertaining, but I don't care for it at all because it has nothing to do with the average guy's experience in Vietnam. Coppola had rock solid opinions about American soldiers in Vietnam and the overall experience there. However, those views have no basis in reality, which isn't really what he was after anyway. But you ask, say, Doug Claiborne, again, another expert um, in the field, and he says, look, The Deer Hunter was a joke in terms of being movies about Vietnam. A really great movie, but a lot of stuff didn't really happen, so it didn't ring true. But Apocalypse had a lot of the wackiness and a lot of the hallucinatory quality of the war. Guys surfing behind boats and so on. And that did ring true. Which is kind of like, it's just fascinating how it it, it maybe wasn't accurate to the letter of the war, but was somehow accurate to the psychology and the pop culture impression of the war. Yeah. It yeah. got that. Like, I think I always think of it like, from what I've read about like Vietnam War and from what I've read about all this, it, like... Not to use a, a, a Zoomer term, but like it captured the vibes of the apocalypse yeah. Yeah. or the, the vibes of the Vietnam War, but it didn't c- have complete verisimilitude. Whereas I think Platoon, because it was so narrowed and focused to uh, Oliver Stone's experience. experience, that that did have complete reality. Well, or as near to reality as you get because he was pulling it from memory. But yeah, I think Apocalypse Now, you had more of like, yeah, as you say, like the had the aura, it had the vibes, it had the kind of the, the, the general sense of it. Like, I'm not surprised that Dale Dye didn't like it because I think Dale Dye. No, but like, I mean, yeah. he's a guy that doesn't really, he's very like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, you look at Band of Brothers, for example. And it's realism, realism, realism. And like, you know, you watch the behind the scenes of Band of Brothers and he refers to everyone by their character names. And, you know, he's very much about literalism, reality, literalism. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas I think Apocalypse Now is not concerned with any of that. It's not concerned with any of that. And that's arguably why it has more of an impact, I think, because it avoided reality and went more for something deeper, something bigger, something more intrinsic i think in the human condition um, and i mean to to alex's point there about like how this movie lingers in the consciousness it's it's fascinating that like this also feels to be like the limit case for like auteur directors where like it always feels like you talk or you read interviews with directors and they're like apocalypse now was my activation point i saw it and i realized what films could be mm-hmm. and they'll always talk about like their passion project as like apocalypse now where like danny boyle is like the beach when we were making The Beach, I wanted to make it like Apocalypse Now. James Gray is like, you know, the reason why I wanted to make Lost City of Z was because I wanted to make my Apocalypse Now. It's kind of fascinating that, like, it arguably hasn't been surpassed as a monument of, like, directorial hubris. Where, like, nobody has managed to get past Coppola uh, in terms of, like, as a director exerting Ayatollah Coppola, Bayside Mussolini vibes. 
Um, like, is is that fair to say, Alex? Is that fair to say, Brian? Yeah, for sure. Like, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you mentioned like Danny Boyle and um, James Gray, in fact, because that Astra was kind of like had Heart to Dark, Heart to Darkness, Apocalypse Now vibes. Yeah, where it's in him space. on a on, yeah in space. Which uh, and I, I mean, I know you don't like Ad Astra. I goddamn loved Ad Astra. I, I, I like Ad Astra. Was, so did I. Yeah, I think you? we both ended up defending it did a we? while ago. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah, this okay, is like yeah. a situation with La La Land, where it's like I like La La Land, and I'm just like like it more. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, like Ad Astra more. It's about like it's about fatherhood. I like it. No, but yeah, um, I do think yeah, no, no, he hasn't been touched. He hasn't been touched because I think again. There are so few directors, I think, working today. I think that would be have the the chutzpah to go off and like, I'm going to mortgage every single house that I've got. I'm going to put every penny I've got into this to make it happen. I don't think any director working today has that bravery. And I think Coppola now that he's doing it again with Megalopolis and that he's like throwing all his wine money at it. I also think there's like a, a darkness... Um to someone of that era, like the, 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 the sort of moral blinders that someone of Coppola's generation can kind of put on and compartmentalize stuff. I mean, like, we've told all the crazy stories. Post-World War II Vietnam, is that? That's where it's exactly. But we've told all the crazy stories about this. But, like, one also lingers in my head where they needed to, to have the scene where Martin Sheen smokes opium. And um, so, you know, Coppola's like, well, I want this to look real. You know, I don't know how to smoke opium. So the government liaison for the dictator that Coppola was working with and paying, uh, Fernando, Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, um, was sort of like, leave it with us. And they drove to a local prison, got an opium uh, addict out of a local prison, brought him to the set, handed him a pipe and some opium and said, Show Coppola how it's done. And the guy goes, uh, smokes the opium in front of Martin Sheen and Coppola. And then they're like, great, uh, we're going to take him back to prison now. You got what you need? And Coppola's like, yes, perfect. Thank you so much. And he sort of tells this story like in a sort of like, bet that guy had a great day, like day visit from prison and not connecting the dots on like, wait a minute, you were working with the Marcos government, and, like pulling people out of prisons and forcing them to take drugs and then putting them back like... He doesn't connect any of that because yeah. he's like, but at the end of the day, we got the got shot. The shot. Like, I feel we like got the shot. that guy is like, yeah, it was a terrible time in the Philippines. But one day they actually took me out of prison. <laughs> gave me I got to meet yeah. the star of the West Wing. <laughs> it was terrific. Yeah. I mean, like, like, again, there's all sorts of like really morally questionable stuff here. Like the water buffalo sacrifice, which is a scene that I always cringe when I watch, which is the death of a real animal on screen yeah, watching that like both times i watched i had to note like is that a real cow yes yeah. unfortunately it is um and like you have like coppola and again it's it's that weird moral blinder thing that distance that exists between like the f- stuff that he's documenting and the footage that he gets where his defense is like look i didn't his his argument was they were they were sacrificing the water buffalo anyway it was something that the local community was doing <laughs> so he figured why not you know get a shot of it and like why not, you know, have... And again, he says, look, we, we did it in one take. Like, we had multiple oh, angles. We have to shoot this again. There was a water buffalo getting sacrificed in the middle of it. It's <laughs> um, um, like, oh, no, we'll leave that in. It's well, no, fine. That, that's the defense there, right? Because it's like, I didn't... And this is a quote from, like, talking about it with, uh, like, USA Today to do with the final cut. I did not direct it or anything. That was the way to do, they do it, Coppola said, noting that he 
refused an offer to keep an extra water buffalo on standby if the first shoot didn't go to plan. That would I, be cruel, yeah. I'm not going to kill an animal for a movie. I'm not going to kill anything for any reason. Which is kind of, again, like one of those interesting moral blinder kind of questions. But Brian, is this on your own personal 250? Your own 250? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And it's higher. It's like, it's, it's, it would be in the top. T- I mean, I never keep, I know I don't keep a hard and fast list, but like, I mean, it's definitely in the top 20. Could potentially get into. Top is this your favorite Coppola? Ooh. Um, my Coppola ranking is weird. Okay. Um, the conversation is my number one. Mm. Um, the conversation is like bang smack up at number one. Godfather part two is two. Godfather then is three, and then Apocalypse Now would be four, but um, but yeah, no, I it's it's it, yeah, like yeah, that's my kind of Coppola ranking. But yeah, the conversation I think is his best film, hands down, because it got everything. It was done economically, <laughs> it, you know, it captured. It's no, no, no. That's the thing. Like it's like I always go back to that thing of um, it's in the French Dispatch when Adrian Brody's character talks about like um modern art you know and he goes, oh you like, ask him to draw a horse yeah, like, that's how you know exactly not yeah yeah that's yeah, yeah yeah he thinks this is better but he can do this and like the conversation is like the little small bird and apocalypse now is like the big huge pink thing <laughs> he thinks this is better but the conversation is like his little bird like you know yeah. that's how i think of like uh coppola in that regard like but um yeah yeah no definitely yeah it's in it's it's absolutely in my top 10 at least i would say top 20 at least wow and Alex, what about yourself? Would this be in your own personal like two fifty movies? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think I'd have a similar ranking of Coppola films to Brian. Um, and it's it's again a film every few years. Like I don't think I would have watched it unless you know we talked about this podcast for a, a good while because it it tends to linger and it, it tends to kind of alienate or something. And it's it's always a bit of a disturbing watch. And as Brian says, it's not one that you watch in parts over a week. It's one where you turn off the lights and like lock in for <laughs> a while. And, um, and I also think that inevitably, I know I realize I've done a lot of it on this podcast, but you kind of get caught up, I think in a lot of the stories around the film to the point where it's, it's actually very hard to just, you know, completely isolate the film as a film. Cause you are thinking like, hey, wait a minute, is that a real water Buffalo? And like, God, can I see how big Brando actually is? And like, oh, Dennis Hopper actually does look insane and on acid, probably because he is. And um, I think watching it for this podcast, though, made me kind of realize like that's that's part of the um, that's just part of the the journey of this film. That's part of the whole experience and and vibe um, of this film. So, yeah, it would be on on my list. It's not one like if somebody asked, you know, I think the Godfather films, incredible conversation, incredible. Um, And to your point, like they're the ones that are sort of neatly packaged and rich and dense and full of incredible performances. And the ones that you'd recommend people start with or watch. And, um, and then there's this one, which is still, as I said at the start, um, even though, you know, it's been subject to so many Saturday night live parodies and games and, other films referencing it and and all of these different things um i still think the experience of watching it is is like nothing else and kind of reminds you of the the power of it so yes absolutely it's uh would be on my my list and andrew what about yourself would this be on your own personal 250 favorite movies um yeah i think i might it 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 might be up there i i am at this moment in time kind of um watching it this weekend 
I didn't feel um, any great special fondness for it. But I think just this weekend, I'm maybe just like a little Movie bit dead. tired. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and not fully engaging. I mean, I mean like, to be fair, the, the movies that we ended up covering this weekend, Andrew and I are doing like a recording weekend together. And the movies we ended up covering were like The Passion of Joan of Arc and Apocalypse Now. Um, so not necessary. And The Search for Spock, Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock, uh, for a little bit of a light chaser. Um, but yeah, so no, these are maybe not the most accessible or kind of like, enjoyable digestible movies in some senses perhaps right yeah yeah but it 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 is a terrific movie and um it it i don't think it would be out of place on most people's um top 250 um so yeah i i I like the the um the idea of getting that guy out of prison and that they didn't just ask dennis hopper it's like hey dennis hopper how do you take drugs (laughs) um yeah Sorry. Well, Hopper may well, not have been a, around at that point. Like again, that was part of it. Like apparently, Hopper was supposed to play the Scott Glenn character, a, a, a sort of stoic, you know, Colby, man who's yeah. kind of had yeah, Colby. And then when he showed up in that like freeform jazz way, Coppola is like, <laughs> okay, okay, we can work with this. You're gonna play the Russian from the book, um, and we're gonna change. Here's some cameras. Just you know, go, go shoot. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely improv. That well, uh, I mean, like, and again, famously, Brando couldn't stand Hopper. Um, like again, that sequence where Hopper's like he threatened to kill me. Um, apparently you, that is yeah, like you must, and he like throws something at him, and Coppola again just filming it, being like, "Wow, great, <laughs> going to kill each other." Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I don't. I have technically asked them to kill each other, so if I just document it, I'm not going to have anybody die for one of my movies. But if it gets on film, that's great. Except right? those people who died. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, Hopper is often the drugs. Um, kind of consultant on movies like in 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 Blue Velvet, I think Lynch was like, and and so you're 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 you're, you're going to huff this like helium, and it's like, now oh, why don't I take drugs? And it's like, are there drugs like that? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, there are. Because <laughs> um, Lynch is such a square. I love that. I love that Lynch is such a square. <laughs> fully buttoned up know. his shirt and suit jacket and like yeah. the milkshake and hamburger he has for lunch every day. Um, a couple black coffees as exciting as he gets. Yeah. Yeah. Cigarettes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, like, and again, like how much the movie changed, like Colby, the character played by Scott Glenn, who I believe is like an actual Vietnam War veteran. Um, that character was like meant to be hugely important and now just appears silently in a couple of shots, which is kind of incredible. It's still powerful. He, yeah. he writes that letter that Martin Sheen has just being like, sell, sell the wife, sell the kids, sell, sell everything, all, like, yeah. blow yeah. it all up. <laughs> I'm not coming home. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. And then um, for myself, I think I like this is the thing where it's like I watch it and I'm like when I whenever I watch it, I'm like, this is enough for me for quite a while. But it is like. A literally transcendental experience where it, there is nothing like it. And I think about it a lot. And, you know, again, I was talking to Andrew this morning how I don't remember my dreams. But this kind of feels weirdly like I imagine a dream feels like where there's no real internal logic. It's just kind of themes and metaphors mm. and things that represent other things. But you don't know what they are because the meaning is constantly shifting underneath it. Yeah, we were we were talking about I had a dream where I was in Cologne, but didn't go to the to the like biggest kind of um, tourist attraction. tourist attraction in Cologne, and at some point in the dream, mentioned, "Oh, we should go see that at some point," <laughs> but just didn't feature in, in 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 the dream. So maybe, so what you're saying is, Apocalypse Now is maybe not like dreams. Is like... <laughs> 
but yeah, um, I think I think it probably would. It's a movie that I think about when I think about the concept of movies, uh, which I think maybe gives it a, a kind of a claim to being on that list. And then final question before we jump to the spoiler zone. And I guess this is kind of, you know, a loaded one. But if listeners have not already seen Apocalypse Now, should they pause the podcast and watch it? And which version would you recommend that they watch? So whether starting out or whether your favorite. So Brian. Um, no, I think you need to. It's a film you need to work your way up to, I think. I think, you know, it's not so, it's not a it's not a comfortable film in the sense of like you wouldn't just throw it on and, you know, sit back and kind of enjoy it. You kind of need to block out time, not just for the length, but I think for like the mental space of it as well. Because you're right, Alex, like I watch it and I'm kind of messed up for a couple of days afterwards. It's kind of still playing in my brain, you know what I mean? And I actually, truth be told, I didn't rewatch it for this. Like I, I kind of told myself, no, no, no. I, I, well, a, I didn't have time, but b, I was kind of like, oh, I'm just gonna be so messed up, and I, I, you know, I can't, I can't get, I can't get in that headspace. I'm, it's, it's too much. Um, but I do definitely think people should watch it. I just think that like it's kind of because if somebody was asking me like, should I watch Sorcerer or should I watch Excalibur? And I was like, oh, well, Sorcerer you can watch at any point. Excalibur you kind of. You know, you need to have the right setting for it. You know, you need to have a little bit of drink on you. Maybe watch it with a few pals. Maybe a little bit high. I don't know. Like, just kind of, you know, you need to be in the right kind of frame of mind for it. Whereas Sorcerer, it's so good. You can watch it at any point because it's so kind of like tight and economical. And I think Apocalypse Now is the same. Not necessarily that you need to be on drugs to watch it, but like you kind of need to kind of clear everything out and then just kind of sit with it for a a day or two and let it kind of seep over you to get the full effect i think but um in terms of versions i mean you know i think that yeah i think uh, a troop again a a troop be told i still haven't got around to watching the final cut yet and i am gonna watch it i think i'll watch it if i get time i'll watch it this evening i think the redux i think the theatrical version is is probably the best version to watch because i think that's you know, considering that a couple has spent so long at it, that this was the first version, and I would appreciate, like, I would take the first version. That was like the director's cut, if you know what I mean. So I would go with that. The Redux version, I think, you know, if you're still obsessed with it, go back and maybe just watch the French scenes and maybe watch a couple of the other scenes just to kind of say, okay, that's where they were in the context of things. But yeah, like the French, I mean, the, the Redux version, I think, like, those. Those French scenes, I thought they were brilliant. I, I, I loved them. I thought they were great. I thought it it spoke to something about... It, like, I mean, the film... To, in my mind, the film is about colonialism. That's what Apocalypse Now is about. It's about colonialism. And that was the most kind of... Uh, uh, explicit? Uh, explicit. Yes, yeah, explicit. That was like, it's about this. And I love that. I love the, I love the fact that, you know, he had that in the can but took it out. And then when he went back to it, he was like, no, 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 people weren't getting this. I'm going to take out my pen now and start making cuts and start making additions because people weren't getting it. This film is actually about colonialism. And I love that. I mean, again, he, the reason why he went back and did Redux. Now, you, if you were a cynic, you say to make a shed load of money. Um, but if you're if you're accepting like Coppola's answer to it, is that like he remembers watching, having that weird, that experience almost that Andrew describes of like watching the movie on TV and being like, those scenes aren't in it. Those scenes that I remember being in this movie that I made aren't in the movie. And wouldn't it the be opposite, fun? Though. The opposite, though. Yeah. <laughs> but like the idea of, yeah, can I go back and can I add these in? Because like, yeah, I, I think 
for me, the Redux stuff that's interesting is that I like those scenes. I don't know if they add to the flow of the story. True, yeah, true. Like, I like, like, the, the, the Playboy Bunny scene that's in Redux, for example, is, is fascinating because it's one of the rare points where the movie engages with the idea of what if women. Um, but then you also have, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the colonial stuff, which is like, what if this was actually about Vietnam in some way, shape or form, as opposed to being an abstract nightmare. And like, those are interesting ideas that make the movie more dreamlike in some senses. Uh, but because like, there's no clear through line, the clear through line of the theatrical cult, which is already fuzzy, becomes completely divorced because it's like, it's also about these other things, mm. um, which I think is something Alex pointed out where you can almost struggle to impose meaning on it. And Redux is just like, but what if more, <laughs> like, what if, what if more confusing imagery? What if more confusing dreamlike logic? I think it, it breaking the flow is true, whether you think it improves it or not, I think. Well, because it's, it's a very long scene. Yeah, but that, that it kind of punctuates it. And does that work in, in terms of like the, the, the tension? Yeah. Do you want it to get straight to Brando Kurtz? Or is this kind of like an interesting sort of like, like... To give an example, if you're watching Redux, like you are at the two and a half hour mark before Brando shows up. You're yeah, at the point yeah. where the theatrical cut is over before Brando even appears in the movie. Um, but sorry, Alex, what about yourself? Do you have a preferred version? Would you recommend people watch the movie? Which one would you recommend? Yeah, so I, I would recommend people watch the movie for all the reasons we're talking about already uh, and all the reasons Brian said as well. And you guys, I actually think and i said at the start that the 2019 cut is my favorite cut of it i think it's got the french scenes that are extremely important and i, I would agree with brian it, even though a lot of this film is kind of feeling like freeform uh, improvisation i think the one theme that it kind of really keeps coming back to is like these self-defeating modes of eternal return that we're all just doomed to continually repeat and as the boat goes almost like, um, and Coppola talks about it, it's like it goes back in time. They start yeah. losing their guns and covering in mud. And um, it's it's so surreal. And I keep saying that word surreal, but it is so surreal to then arrive at this very French accordion playing, everyone slapping each other comedy nearly in the middle of the jungle when a minute ago they were, you know, literally on there being hit by bows and arrows and like being fired at by flares and 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 where they're actually going. And I, I think it's such a like beat or like a breath before the final horror horror kicks in. But I think it's also so important to almost remind people of civilization. I think that actually makes the next part so much more powerful that just down the river, this is all going on while these guys are making ratatouille and um, playing the accordion and talking to each other. It's it's crazy. But to Brian's point that the the power of that sort of colonialism and the idea that these maniacs are in the jungle growing rubber because they've been here for a thousand years and they will continue to be here for a thousand years and the greed that's behind all that and that they go through these little rituals like burying it's Lawrence Fishburne I know we're not in the spoiler zone yet sorry yeah. they bury one of the soldiers um and they kind of do an approximation of an American military funeral and then four scenes later, less, they're just pushing someone into the river. You know, they're just sort of yeah. like, oh, yeah, he's dead. You know, and yeah, it's, the river it's, has him now. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's it, so I completely think those French scenes are so, so powerful. And for that reason, I think either the Redux or the 2019 version are the ones to watch. My preference is the 2019. I think it keeps the crucial Playboy bunny scene where you have them arrive dressed as cowboys and Indians and all the American troops 
going awooga awooga while the Vietnamese people are behind a fence. I think that's a very powerful, scary scene when they take over the helicopter. Um, but it loses the bad Playboy scene where Willard like arranges for like half an hour with the bunnies for like uh, petrol, which you know there's a lot of problems with that scene. But it's more I think it doesn't work with the Willard character. I think he's supposed to be such a sort of powerful sort of witness to everything. I, I actually don't like the scenes where he becomes a little bit more human and a little bit more like the other soldiers and things like that. I, I prefer when he's the guy. So like those the scene big, of the surfboard, for example. Yeah. I don't like that scene either, but like the big, beautiful Martin Sheena, I just looking at stuff being like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But going back to the other, the main thing I'd say about recommending this to people, watch it on a big screen. Watch the 2019 cut is like an incredible restoration. He's so good, Coppola, going back getting the he cares so much about this stuff and really really refining this isn't just some like cheap re-release for money and stuff even if it is it's worth it because he and the sound the sound is incredible in this film um like really not like anything else so the bigger the screen the better the better setup if you can see it in the cinema if you want to save it for the cinema absolutely do that as well um because the sound is so so incredible and it's incredible really remarkable how it hasn't really been matched um if you can see this in a screen with giant big surround speakers and stuff like Coppola talks about how he went to um I think it was you know one of the big uh cinema chains was doing these things where they put speakers under the seats and uh, kind of like an approximation of 4dx and all the seats and everything would vibrate and when he talked to the guys about this they were like this is like getting Steve McQueen in your movie. It's going to cost you so much if you want to license our patent to do all this. And Coppola just sort of, in that very Coppola way, was like, okay, I'm okay. And then went and just built his own version. which, (laughs) But like sent extremely specific instructions in that very like psychopathic James Cameron way. It has to be exactly at this pace. It has to be at this sound. Um, So I would recommend the final cut, but really more than anything else, recommend big screen, big sound. Um, Yeah, that's the way to watch this film. I mean, like, even watching this last night in, in the surround sound setup that I have, like, you can hear the choppers flying behind you yeah. as the movie's taking place even before they appear on screen. It's a phenomenal experience just in terms of sound design. But, Andrew, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, you- yeah, and, 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 I, and I do agree that the experience watching it in, in, in the Darren Plex was, was, <laughs> was kind of like a good way to, to, to see it. With the with 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 the big screen and the surround sound and um, like um, but if you if you don't have a Darrenplex, you could go to a cinema, I suppose. That's <laughs> a step down. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. The um, but yeah, the, and 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 that opening shot, the 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 whir of those blades and the kind of like the dance of sands, doors playing, and then the explosion and the burning and the kind of double exposure and triple exposure yes and it's 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 kind of from start to finish um has those sort of um uh, very few throughout. cuts lots of fades lots of transitions lots of double yeah. exposures you said like again kind of dreamlike in a sense yeah fascinating yeah. so i definitely recommend it yeah, yeah no. um and we should mention again we'll probably talk about but vittorio uh storaro's uh, cinematography is just astounding i think i i think i may have said last night again being an awful cinema or darren plex partner to andrew i think i may just have turned to him at one point and said i don't think waters ever look this good on screen but anyway sorry take that james cameron um, yeah and it, 
you're you're wondering whether they had added oil to it. To well, no, it, I was I was yeah. like, this is probably an environmental disaster. Like, it probably only looks so good because there's so much like pollutants and petrol in it, just reflecting the light. Mm. And I was like, kind of couple esque. It's like I know he didn't kill a planet to make this, but <laughs> on the other hand, but yeah, I, I I would absolutely recommend it. I I don't know that I think of this as three different movies. I don't know if I think of like Apocalypse Now as the theatrical, the Redux, and the Final Cut because I think I've watched them so many times that they kind of merge together in my head and it's hard for me to separate them out. Um, and they are just like different facets of the same object. That idea, like the irony of film where it's like you have this concrete object that is perceived objectively, that thing where Christopher Nolan refuses to do 3D because it's like, but if you do that, the image that a person sees depends on where they sit in the cinema. And that for me is not what cinema is. Cinema is an objective image, an objective object that exists. What I think I like about Apocalypse Now is that it doesn't feel like that it feels like three pictures of a thing that is almost like indescribable and you watch the three versions of the movie and they are different in ways that are hard to articulate you can point to the scenes that were taken in and taken out but like even the presence of those scenes and the tempo and the rhythm of the movie shifts and so as as kind of you know as Brian and Alex have pointed out the themes of the movie shift the focus of the movie shifts what the movie is about or what I think as an audience member the movie is about shifts with that as well I, I think that's just remarkable. So my cheat is watch all three versions of the movie. But um, <laughs> if, you, if you had to pick one, I'd probably side with Alex. I go with the 2019 uh, Final Cut as the best compromise between the two. Um, but yeah, that would be my recommendation. With that in mind, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So Alex, what is Apocalypse Now about for you? I think I, I sort of probably already, yeah, spoilered this, um, my take on this. I, I think, as I say, it's kind of about these, um, you know, the, the patterns that history tends to sort of like endlessly repeat itself and the, the primal myth and death and rebirth. And that even though it's a film that starts in a very real conflict that's arguably portrayed in, in, in those early scenes with Harrison Ford and the creepy CIA agent and even you know, the, the sort of context of the actual war itself, all of which feels consistent with at least our movie version of Vietnam. And then as the film goes on, you start sort of like losing any semblance of even reference points to um, the fact that it's Vietnam, you know, the, the fact that it's it's this very specific um, conflict. And the idea of um, the characters, particularly Kurtz at the end, as, uh, you know, the the... the sort of godlike god warrior soldier who eventually sort of kills so many people he starts maybe seeing through to the other side um I, I think that's what the film's most powerful part of it is that this is something that we're all doomed to maybe repeat um non-stop and that we're caught up on these cycles and that forever there's going to be people in the facing the literal end of the world building a rubber plantation on mars and thinking and, and we're going to continue to sort of see those things and i think that's it and that the 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 horror paired with the surreal you know the the, the smoke for instance which at the start of the film i think is a, is a very good microcosm of how the film goes you see it being used to mark where helicopters land and by the end soldiers or like sam bottoms is just waving it around like this doesn't Purple mean haze. anything exactly we're all just like completely out of it the horrible scene at the bridge where it does feel like I know they're literally leaving Vietnam and, and going off in, up into Cambodia, but it does sort of feel like now we're we're leaving behind any semblance of 
authority and military and all these concepts that the first part of the film really dwelt on and embodied by a character sort of saying, I thought you were in charge, you know, when he's like, who's in charge here? And you're like, oh, right. Yeah, no, anything. This is just really anarchy. And do you know who's in charge? Yeah. 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 That's that's fantastic. That scene. And um, then, you know, the ending and and I think particularly the idea of, of reaching the end of this journey and, and finding Kurtz. And it's incredible that Brando, the greatest living actor of maybe all time, is playing Kurtz. And but he's talking absolute nonsense. You know, he's he, but he's terrifying in that sort of like crazy, terrifying person way. And it's um, so, yeah, that's what I, as I said, I think it's about self-defeating modes of eternal return. I think that it's it's about colonialism, which will continue to be something that we as a species do to ourselves. Um, and Apocalypse Now is a wonderful encapsulation of that because it it smuggles in all this weird stuff in the guise of a film about war and conflict and, and Vietnam um, when it's not, you know, really, as you said, about just Vietnam. It's it's much, much bigger than that. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, like to get into that idea of eternal return and like going backwards. I mean, I, there's a sense in which this movie is kind of a Western. It's like the most Western that ever existed, where it's this idea of American fantasy. And I guess that kind of the point of intersection to Brian's themes about colonialism and imperialism, where like, you know, Vietnam is technically West of America. Andrew's going to mark the 250 <laughs> bingo card and he's going to say push westward, uh, manifest destiny. But yeah. it's the idea that like, and again, so much of this movie is tied up in like surfer culture. Mm. Like there's, I think Milius, uh, who is from California, has said he's always seen Vietnam as a West Coast war. Um, the idea that Coppola himself is in San Francisco. But so much of this movie is about like California culture in the end of the 60s. You've got like the the news clippings of like the Manson cult at home mm. and the idea that what Kurtz is doing in Vietnam, while it's obviously inspired directly by people we will reference in Vietnam who actually existed, but it's also very Manson-esque. You have obviously like Dennis Hopper, who is the face of like 1960s drug culture, uh, presented as this kind of creepy figure at the end of it. You've Lance the Surfer, who's the only surviving member of the boat crew who goes completely insane. You have the idea of Kurtz as a surfer, the bunker, uh, even on at that bridge. Kilgore is, is, is a Beverly surfer. Hills. Kilgore is a surfer as well. Like you have this idea that it is very much rooted in again filmmaking you have like all the cameras you've got dennis hopper as the cameraman but even when kilgore is wandering around you have coppola shooting the documentary footage that keep moving keep moving but you have like the moment where he just pauses and smiles for a female photographer who's just wandering around taking pictures the idea that like this is america has somehow like exported california to vietnam even lance where he's like could there be a place like disneyland could there be a place as magical as disneyland he looks around he goes i think this is it i think this is where we are and the idea of it being kind of like the weird spring break aspect of it, where you have like them surfing behind boats, terrorizing the locals. You have them mooning each other and setting each other's boats on fire like rowdy students. But the idea that also you have like the Kilgore stuff, where Kilgore is a cowboy. They're the air cavalry division. They used to ride horses. They've given up horses for planes. But he still wears a big cowboy hat. He wears a yellow neckerchief like he's a Union soldier during the Civil War. His code name is Big Duke Six, which is very much like John Wayne adjacent. And again, like, just fascinating that as the, again, Alex pointed out, like, even the Playboy bunnies are all codified cowboys and Indians. The fact that you come down to arrows towards the climax of the movie. It's kind of fascinating that, like, Coppola is like, what if 
Apocalypse Now is like, what if Vietnam or just the American experience is this weird attempt to recreate the foundation myth? And again, you know, we talked about it, I think, on Godfather Part 2, where that is a story about how the Corleones can only get so far west. They can only get to, like, Lake Tahoe. They can never get to California, the promised land. I love that this is, like, the nightmare version of that, which is what if what if the western frontier of America just kept growing and expanding and we had some sort of weird psychological breakdown? But, Brian, you mentioned, like, the colonialism. What Do you if, want to talk about that? What if it was G.D. Spradlin each time? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, it's, no, well, yeah, yeah, no, G.D. Spradlin, like, he, the fact that he's so western in that, that he's, like, so, like, he just, he's, like... You can just imagine him with just like this big 10 gallon hat kind of like almost like the Simpsons, you know, like he's got the camera on or something like, like walk waddling into frame and sitting down and be like, good afternoon, gentlemen, I believe I will have myself a beverage. It's just like he's so Western like, but, um, but yeah, no, like, I mean, it's actually, and it's funny you mentioned the Westerns because I always think of um, Fall Metal Jacket that, you know, like when Joker goes, you know, is that you, John Wayne? Is this me? And then when they're shooting the 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 attack that they're um, when the camera crew was going by in Full Metal Jack, and he goes, "This is Vietnam, the movie," and he goes, "Like I'll be John Wayne, I'll be a horse," and then he goes, "We'll let the we'll let the Vietnamese be the Indians," you know. Like it's you're right. Like I do think that a lot of uh, Vietnam movies were kind of Western movies. Like even Platoon, to to some degree, I think like. You know, Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe, it was like, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And we're going to have to duke it out at some point. The town just happened to be Charlie Sheen's soul. But, like, it's still very much like two bad hombres, you know, square and down. I think the only movie I think that I can think of that didn't have that kind of Western vibe to it would be Casualties of War. And I think that was Brian De Palma depicting... Vietnam and colonialism as rape that it was like it was a rape um whereas you know Coppola does it in Apocalypse Now it's like no 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 this is colonialism but this is like western colonialism this is like yeah fuck yeah we're gonna go here we're gonna civilize these people like that's tame you're taming yeah you're taming a wild a wilderness yeah exactly like like you know when the tanks all roll in with the fire with the breathing fire and all the rest of it and you can see in the background the priest like you know doing the mass saying his mass yeah yeah saying the mass that's it like it's every kind of colonialism you can think of it's we're literally gonna burn this place down and the first thing we're gonna start with is religion we're gonna you know uh well they're building uh, a church in the background the yeah you can see that they're erecting like there's bamboo scaffolding in the front of a church yeah it's, exactly it's, yeah it's, and they're and the guys are surfing out on the beach as well like no 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 we're gonna make america right here and that's how we're gonna do it yeah and i think like as alex mentioned you had this weird situation where like the making of apocalypse now is like inseparable from Apocalypse Now. I mean, you have that joke in, I think, Tar. Yeah. Where, like, she's going to visit the Philippines and she's told not to put her hands in the water because they brought over alligators for that Marlon Brando movie. But, I mean, even in real life, you have, like, the community where they shot that sequence, the Charlie Don't Surf sequence, the village that we mentioned there, that's Baylor. It now has, like, a vibrant surfing economy because the uh, locals noticed the filming crews, like, surfing and decided to turn it into their entire kind of tourist industry. So you have this weird idea where even like filming of Apocalypse Now was arguably like an act of colonialism or some sort of like cultural imperialism where you end up like exporting these values overseas by making the narrative of this place inseparable from this American story that you're telling. Yeah. And even in the background of that shot, you have people playing American football. It's 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 so much a part of kind of what the movie is, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And like it's it's it, there's that line that it's like we tried to bring America, we tried to bring America over bit by bit, you know, with the yeah, beers the, and the, the steaks, the barbecue, the T-bone steaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah the barbecue and T-bone steaks. Whereas, you know, I think that's almost like in contrast to what Kurt says at the end when he's kind of gibber and mad, and he's all like, you know, if I had ten lead when he talks about you, like you know, the arms are hacked off, and he says like you know, what is it like if if I had ten legions of those men. Our troubles here would, would be soon over. be. Our troubles here would soon be over, it, and you know it's that thing of, you know, initially you kind of. I think anyway, this is just my take on it, but like I think initially you start to think like, oh, it's Western society is colonialist, and that it's they're just trying to invade this country, and they're you know we're actually the savages. But then when you reach Kurtz, and they're like hacking up a water buffalo in front of it, and there's like the heads are everywhere. It's not necessarily that uh, Western society is evil and corrupt. It's just humanity itself is just so laden with violence and that this is a primal version of it. But, you know, previous to that, you've got like, you know, The Doors, you've got uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, you've got Playboy, you've got all this sort of accoutrements around it. But in reality, humanity is just, and pardon my language, humanity is just fucked. It's just going to kill itself no matter what. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you've got Playboy bunnies or if you've got, like, Hueys or if you've got bows and arrows or if you've got, you know, French settlers and they're very refined wines. They're just evil. It's all that, not even evil, but it's just, they're they're just going to rip each other apart no matter what. And I think that kind of is the thing about what I love about Apocalypse Now is that it's grabbing, it's grappling with something so huge as the darkness of humanity, you know? But it has colonialism, it has American expansionism, it has all these things. But it, at its core, it's like the darkness of humanity, I think. It's that old kind of idea as well. It's like from Tacitus, where they 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 speaking about the Roman army, that they bring desolation and they call it peace. And you see yeah. that with Kilgore... Where they where they have them spreading peace in the word of God, like and 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 calling out, telling people like this, this is a VC kind of like place where we're you know and we're 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 going to look after you. Well, the wonderful as, moment as where like Kilgore has down. leveled the village and he like picks up the woman's son who's wounded and he's like, get the woman's son onto the conveyor belt, get this child and this single woman who's been like whose life has been upturned by this horrible thing we've done, and make sure she gets to hospital, make sure she gets treated. But the the and and you see it as well with Kurtz, where it's like I could do some real good with that sort of. uh with that kind of attitude that 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 pure brutality like we could we we could really bring peace to that's the thing about this movie where like it was important we started with uh milius john milius who would go on to become a director in his own right he directed conan the barbarian he directed like red dawn which i think held the guinness book of world records record for being the most violent movie ever made in which like america was like invaded during the cold war by the russians um but like milius is extremely extremely right wing and i think he said that like he admires some of the men i think he specifically cites colonel railt um that he based kurtz on like so there is this kind of push and pull in the movie where like coppola over the years has gone from being like 
I don't know if this is an anti-war movie. I think it's more an anti-lie movie to saying things like, I don't think this is an anti-war movie. An anti-war movie wouldn't have helicopters in it. Yeah. Um, where he's been like, I don't know if this is, is an anti-war movie. Whereas Milius... Yeah, no, no, no. Just like the true... I always think of the Truffaut quote that is like, you know, there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because putting it on screen is making it exciting and that negates the purpose of an anti-war movie. Like, mm. And I mean, really, like, in my mind, the only anti-war movie I can think of is Come and See. That's it. That's the only anti-war movie. Everything else is a war movie. Come and see is an anti-war movie. So, yeah. I mean, like, like here's Milius, like, in 1977, to, like, before the film's been released, where he's talking about this. He's like, Francis thought he was a liberal, but now he's got more sense. How can he be left-wing when he's so concerned with money and power? He's a capitalist now, isn't he? A millionaire several times over? And he's met the guys who fought in the war. He knows they're not ashamed. They're proud, good men. Francis no longer wants to liberalize Apocalypse Now. The liberal press in this country has deliberately discredited the army, and I think today Francis sees the folly of that. And you have him later on, like, when Coppola's like, no, that's not what I meant at all. Milius talking about Coppola and going, he sees himself as a great humanitarian, an enlightened soul who will tell you such wonderful things as he does at the end of Godfather 2, that crime doesn't pay. Talent-wise, he's no John Ford. Character-wise, he's no Steven Spielberg. Francis can't stand to have any other creative influence around. Francis Coppola has this compelling desire to save humanity when the man is a raving fascist. Um, and it is kind of, and you have like a lot of the pushback at the time the reviews of this movie when it came out were kind of polarized. We'll maybe talk about them in a moment. But one of the big criticisms was like, is this a liberal or a conservative movie? Does this have a point of view? And you have like Gary Arnold in the Washington Post saying like, Coppola, a typically feckless Hollywood liberal, probably took on the project thinking of himself as an anti-war moralist. It says more about the people writing that. Like it, it tells mm. you about where they stand kind of on the political spectrum. Kind of whether whether it's not left wing enough for them or not right wing enough for them, it it's not talking about Coppola or the movie. It's talking about their kind of prism of okay of understanding it. Right? And well, uh, any the that's how I feel. I, I I guess. No, I I kind of agree, and I think like like Milius, I think he's actually insane. Like he's someone who, <laughs> on the one hand, is like usually calling for things like minimum wage laws, and then the other and being like, but we should also have like mandatory conscription and should invade every country in the, the world. Like he, I think he described himself as a Zen anarchist. At a certain point with Milius, I kind of just disengage and watch the, <laughs> some of the films. But um, well, the, the, the reason Milius calls this Apocalypse Now is because he saw a hippie with a button saying Nirvana now and was like, I'll show you. Yeah. What if we just nuke the whales, everything? Yeah. Yeah. Nuke the whales. Gotta nuke something. But sorry, yeah. Alex. But I, I think that's going back to the point that Apocalypse Now, I don't know if it can be buttoned down. I, I think the we haven't really talked about it, but the famous Ride of the Valkyrie scene that, you know... Um, Sam Mendes uses in Jarhead and is apparently like Anthony Swafford's book that Jarhead's based on does say that they they would watch that scene from Apocalypse Now to like pump themselves up and not the rest of the surrounding film which is always like <laughs> what do you guys think happened next um but like that scene is like a Lenny Riefenstahl film or something like it's incredible yeah. but it's it's horrifying you know and even though he cuts crucially to like literally a baby with half its cheek blown off and like surfboards and bombs and stuff like he does a lot of extremely telling edits and it, it's still you know very like as i say something like lenny riefenstahl would have made apparently he showed it to kurosawa and kurosawa was like that's pretty good and only recommended one or two changes which is the kind of like you know you got something good when 
Kurosawa <laughs> only said, no, that's, you don't need to change anything there. But sorry, going back to my point is, is that I, I'm, I think it's a film that, you know, swerves left and right and does this and does this perspective. And is the kind of film that shows someone blowing the crap out of a, a you know, village horribly and showing all these like children being blown apart. And then when someone passes Kilgore, a child on the beach, he's like, someone save this child from me. You know, it's, but it, <laughs> it, it's the point is, is almost to encompass some of those viewpoints that the kind of people then who are saying, oh, this isn't right wing enough, or actually it's secretly left wing. If you look at these things, I kind of think is to um, to ignore the the bigger picture with that film, which is it's probably a little bit of all of those things. It's it's definitely not an anti war film because it's so thrilling in parts and scary and um, but it's it's also yeah a million miles away from the Green Berets with John Ford that you mentioned at the start as well. I mean, I, I, again, like just in terms of Milius, it's worth mentioning that like the Iraq War had like Operation Red Dawn. And you had people openly talking like during that operation and how much they loved watching Milius's Red Dawn. And yeah. it is that weird thing where this movie is, as you said, you watch that sequence with the Ride of the Valkyries and just nothing else from the movie. It, it's kind of interesting how it has that permeability to it. How Again, it, it's something that you can read. And I think that's maybe to the film's strength. I think that's maybe why it endures as much as it can, that it doesn't impose meaning. It lets you kind of try and figure out. Mm. But I wanted to ask, actually, because Alex, you mentioned this, the character of Willard, because I think we were watching the movie last night, and Andrew at one point said to me, Willard was kind of useless there, wasn't mm. he? And you mentioned the idea of, like, Willard as a character shifting between the two versions. Do we have a read on Willard as a character, or during the, over the three versions? I, I think part of, like, my view is always, um, and I think some of it goes back to the Conrad book, which, uh, Hearts of Darkness, which, you know, it was based on Conrad's own experiences. And I think if you read that book, there's a lot of extremely powerful scenes in it where the author almost feels like, absent in their own story or something and 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 there's a sequence where he, he comes across slaves tied up to trees screaming for help and he, he can't do anything because you know he's this single man who, who who feels overwhelmed by all of this and that scene from the book although it's not directly in this film I, I think that's a very telling about Captain Willard I think the other thing that's very telling is the fact that he recast Harvey Cattell yes. who apparently was doing a lot of very charming actor things which i could see harvey cattell doing yeah. and the couple is sort of remembers watching him and being like i don't want this charming compelling good actor doing literal actorly touches i want someone who has big sad eyes to look sad and haunted and that's what he got with martin sheen and i think that it's an incredibly important character but that's why i don't like the second playboy sequence and i don't like the scene where he steals the surfboard because it feels like it feels like the sort of a different character, like we were getting sort of elements of a much more deeper, richer character when um, the Willard character is supposed to be this horrifying witness. And, and, and the way he sort of reacts almost robotically, like that, that horrifying sequence where they blow apart the boat, the boat of people and um, over the puppy. And I remember Coppola again, true to sign of a psycho on the commentary saying like to be clear we were not cruel to that dog i know it looks like we were but we were not cruel to that dog and I was like, oh, well a andrew like literally went what when they when they're fighting when willard and lance are pulling the dog isn't that the thing or when lance and yeah they like the dog. pull the dog apart nearly like trying to but you know i suppose that in, sequence... in fairness i think i've seen vets well with cats anyway kind of like they they 
They definitely do, like, grab them by the scr- scruff of the neck. It's a very soldier thing to, like, blow apart a teenager and then be like, oh, no, a puppy, and, like, save the puppy. Yeah, it's it's horrible. But the part there where, you know, the, the girl is crying on the ground and, and wounded and the chief is yeah. sort of like, okay, you know, Geneva Convention says out. we have to take her. And Martin Sheen just goes, no, and blows her away because he's got a job to do. And he's, you know... um, Brando says at the end, he's an errand boy. He's got to go do his errand. And so that's, I think it's, he's a very compelling character. I think the casting of Barton Sheen is very telling. I think the fact that he looks like he's on the cusp of death, which he was in real life, also goes yeah. into some of that performance. And Massive heart attack massive during heart the making attack. of the movie. <laughs> um, and I, I think that, yeah, it's, it's a witness. It's an audience. And I think... It's actually very rare you get an actor who's so good to be that vessel for the audience, to have such a quiet performance and such a loud, over-the-top film. But it's one of the key reasons why the film works is is Martin Sheen's performance. I mean, I kind of... Like, that's the thing where I talk about the movie being three different facets of the same thing, where it's like, I, I, I get that Willard is our witness and Willard is our vehicle and Willard is our kind of channel, but there's always this element with him for me where it's like, he wants this. He talks about, like, how, you know, when he was here, all he wanted to be was home. But as soon as he was home, he just stayed long enough to tell his wife he wanted a divorce and mm. to come back. He wants he, to be in the jungle, He wants to be in the Yeah, that's it. He wanted a mission. You know, that's that's the thing that he wants and how it's pulling him in. And again, that what I find interesting about the, the redux and the final cut stuff, the stuff where, for example, he steals the surfboard or he prostitutes the, the, Ameri- the you know, the Playboy models or whatever, is that those are scenes where Willard is like actively manipulative where like it's very clear what he's doing he's stirring shit for the sake of stirring shit he's stealing the surfboard because it's a way of exciting him or making him interesting when he arranges or to prostitute like the the playboy models he doesn't he doesn't partake it's very deliberate like the other the men on the boat with the exception of the chief to all take part willard has no interest in it Willard is doing that in order to placate the men to make his mission more amicable. That's true, actually, yeah. I didn't think of that. That's a good point. It's this incredibly sociopathic manipulation of these people around him. Um, And, like, you have a threat where, like, you can tell when the chief is, like, on the boat and he's like, I don't like what I'm doing here. You can see the moment where Willard does the calculation of how much do I tell him about what I'm doing to Mm. make my job with him easier. And, like, again, the bit where the chief gets impaled on the spear... Um, and, like, tries to kill Willard, which yeah. is entirely justified, I would argue. At that point, I'm kind of rooting for the chief in that moment. But, like, I, I that's the, the push and pull where if you watch the theatrical cut, Willard, as you said, is much more passive. He's much more of an observer. He's, again, he's being drawn up to Kurtz. There's this idea, I think Brian kind of alluded to, of, like, the devolution of man, where it's like a sliding scale. It's like that kind of silhouette picture of, like, Neanderthal into human, where it's like you start with Willard... Then you end up with Kilgore, who is, like, bald, but still recognizably human. He's shirtless by the end of his scene, but he's not quite full Brando Kurtz. And then you end up with Kurtz at the end. And the idea that, like, Kurtz's whole shtick here is that he wants, like, he wants Willard to replace him. Yeah. Like, that seems to be his game. Like, he's got malaria. He's dying. Uh, He's not in the best physical shape. And you have the moment where he hacks him to death and he sits down and he sits down at the typewriter and it's almost like a, do I continue where he left off? Do I take over? The moment where he goes out and you have like the crowd assembled almost in worship of him. Yeah. And he kind of walks away. Like, I, I, I can see your point about like the passiveness of Willard being like a key to the character. 
But I do also like the other stuff that is like, no, underneath that, like, passivity, underneath the guy who nods and goes, yes, sir, of course, sir. Uh, that was was it was completely unacceptable and he goes of course sir and then yeah. immediately in his voiceover is like what the fuck i've killed six people what the hell is going on here you understand yeah. why this is son the, the, no yeah just that, that line about like you know like uh, charging somebody with murder here was like handing out speeding tickets <laughs> at the indy 500 like that's brilliant that's such a good line like yeah but he's he's so passive like he's so he's so yeah. like he smiles and he nods and he's he's very timid taking like the shrimp and stuff like he's so mm like obsequious but sorry, sorry no yeah just and i think it's interesting as well because like, the ending like you probably noticed already but like the alternate ending was was that kurtz and kurtz and willard were going to team up and fight off the americans like which is just yeah. such a fucking million that's a john millions yeah. ending <laughs> that is such a like it's like god you know what i mean of course he'd write that like, but it's, it's funny that Coppola says, like, going through the film, he's like, I had no idea how this was ending, which means he reads, reads the Milia script and is like, nope, that's not happening, and then makes the rest of the film. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's, like, the, okay, so just to provide some context on the, like, Milius ending, like, this, like he's modelled by Rielt, who was, in, you know, imprisoned with his command and forced to resign from the army for having executed a double agent, so he's very directly engaged in that. But, like, you have Milius saying, I firmly believe Rielt was framed. Francis Ford Coppola wanted to cut out all the parallels, saying the public couldn't identify with a character like that. But in numerous drafts of the script, Brando said he could use the character of Rialt as a satisfactory basis for his portrayal of Kurtz. Here's the quote from Milius. Rialt is a great man. I believe in his kind of warfare, in having specialized units. Men like Rialt could have helped us win the war. We almost did win it. We lost the war not in Vietnam, but on the campuses. It's a shame. We're soft in this country. We have a soft underbelly. We have a president now who is going way, giving way to the Russians. We're handing over Africa. I believe a character such as Rialt would be valuable in times like these. And it's amazing that, like, to Alex's point and to Andrew's point, when Kurtz says that stuff in the movie, which it seems like Milius was like, this is my thesis statement. The movie's like, he's fucking insane. Yeah, mm. that's exactly it. Like the fact that they shoot him like up close <laughs> and he's just like munching away at the thing. And he's all like, you know, you know, uh, you must make a friend of horror. You must make a friend of horror and moral terror. And everyone's like, yeah, he's fucking crazy. Easy, but like John Millis was like, finally, I'm getting to, I'm getting, like, I finally got my, my my work is on screen. Yeah, exactly. I've got my chance now. I can tell everyone what I think. Like, and it's like, yeah, he's crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know, again, what kind of what Alex was saying, like, eternal return, like that. You know, Kurtz wanted Willard to replace him, and that, like you were saying, that like there'll be a rubber plantation on Mars, you know, that sort of way, that this is just a constant... Uh, Cycle, yeah. A, a constant recurring thing, yeah. And that, like, again, that goes to what I was saying, that, like, it's just humanity. Humanity is just like this, that they're just going to do this no matter what. It will always happen, whether it's in France, or whether it's French people, whether it's, you know, the the, the Montagard people, whether it's, you know, on in space... It's just a, a facet of humanity. It's the darkness of humanity. Like, I mean, we should mention, by the way, like the ending. We mentioned Copeland not having an ending when he started shooting the movie and the panic that kind of set in around that. It was uh, Dennis Jacob, the guy that we mentioned who stole a reel of film during the editing process, who went completely insane making the movie, who was an old UCLA friend, who came up with the idea of, well, look, Willard was sent to kill Kurtz, just have him kill Kurtz. Um, like that's apparently yeah. just how it came about it was just in conversation like let it happen but Andrew like you were the person who said like Willard was kind of useless what do you make of Willard as a character yeah he 
he is for for somebody who um has that kind of wish to go back to the jungle and presumably for for um for the violence of it and has a taste for it he just seems kind of like rattled when the when the when the boat is attacked um when they kill clean and doesn't really contribute uh, in any kind of way to the defense kind of up to the point where he kills kurtz i think the only other person that he's killed is is um the woman on the boat yeah yeah which is which is which is the very it's after they've like ed 209 <laughs> the, the, the riverboat and somebody's like somebody get a goddamn paramedic um yeah um and that that, that is also by the way the 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 food waste uh, uh, that section. boat was full yeah, of rice yes. it was yeah yeah but um yeah he 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 doesn't kind of um his brief kind of i suppose moment of um yeah he he, he is he is the kind of the as a lot of us have said the 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 witness his 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 moment of 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 action is very kind of uh, uh, brief, but iconic. Like when it, when he comes out of the water and, and that. I don't know if that's a criticism. It's just kind of like it it's it's it is interesting, kind of knowing what we know about the character, um, how disinterested uh, he is when it comes to actually like waging war. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, there, there's the scene where he's at the USO show and he is the only person sitting down. I actually love those exchanges where he's like, he like, Willard's thing is drink. He has drink. He, he refuses drugs throughout the movie. Chef is like constantly trying to pass him a spliff or whatever. Yeah. But he's like mostly just like sitting down and having a beer or putting Martinelli in his like drink dispenser or whatever. And he's always they like, have a great detail where he's got like a bottle of cognac wrapped in a magazine, which is such a like alcoholic trick to yeah. be like, I'm holding a magazine. And he's just sitting there drinking his magazine. That was a really good little detail. Yeah. But like the, the men are going wild over the women at the USO show and you just keep cutting to like Martin Sheen just sitting down, swigging from his yeah. can, waiting for the chaos. To ha- he's like when the chaos, when the men run the barricades, that's when he like leans forward and stands. Yeah. Up. He's like, whoa, something's happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Get it out. laughs> Now Somebody's I'm going to die. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that does play into the ending, though, that he's he he, he doesn't have the imaginative creative creativity of Kurtz, you know, when when faced with like, hey, do you want to become the next chief of hell? You know, he's like, no, I've, I've got a job. <laughs> I'm to good. Do. And, yeah. You know, kills <laughs> yeah. the devil and then just like leaves. You know? yeah. Well, like, I mean, and, and again, like to the point, like that moment where he kills the woman, like. And, and this is the thing that I find fascinating about the movie, and it's kind of two faces. It's like, is it left-leaning? Is it right-leaning? Does that matter at all? The bit where, like, when he talks about that, he, he like, in the voiceover narration, he's like, you know, we would slap a Band-Aid on that to make us feel better. It's that thing that you talk about with, like, Kurtz. Uh, sorry, not with Kurtz, with Kilgore. Well, Kilgore will level a village, but as long as he helps a small child into an evacuation boat, he's like, we did good work today. Redeemed, yeah. He's yeah. redeemed. That moment where he's offering the VC on the ground water, the water. from his canteen. Yeah. yeah. And, and and then, like, gets distracted by the arrival of Lance. And so you have, like, the shot of the poor VC just, like, <laughs> pulling like, at uh, his leg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like... Brutal. I mean, it's horrible, it's, it's, but, like, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it is a comedy, a very yeah. dark comedic it moment. Is, yeah. yeah, it's horrible. Definitely. The whole Kilgore thing. Yeah. Like, him being a goofy fuck. <laughs> yeah, just, just a great yeah, line. He is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you like, can uh, the sir crap, Lance. I'm Bill Kilgore. I'm a goofy fuck. 
I, I, I don't, as I say, I'm not hugely fan of the stealing a surfboard scene because it feels kind of incongruent or something. But um, I do love the recorded message. He plays through the jungle for three days. <laughs> yes. That's incredible. That's so cool. Yeah. I just want my surfboard back, Lance. That's it's all very hard to find a surfboard. I'm not angry. I just want my surfboard back. It was a good like, board and I like yeah. it. And I like it, yeah. yeah. But like, I, I love the, but again, again, that's the thing where like the theatrical cut ends with him going someday this war is going to end and just like walking off, like yeah, forlorn so and disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, part of me is like, I like the surfboard stuff, but that is the perfect ending for that character yeah, standing no. in the middle of this wave of devastation and just being like, you know, someday this is going to end and I've made myself sad just yeah. thinking about it. But like, it, it's the Willard stuff where Willard's like, we will, we'll like shoot them in the head and stick a bandaid on and make us feel better. And, and that, feeling like a progression kind of getting to like Kurtz's weird if I had 10 legions of men who would chop the arms off children we could maybe win this war and that that idea of like the passage between the two where obviously the movie's like this all is horrible and insane but there's also a point where the movie's kind of like is it more insane to call yourself like a liberator or to Mm. call yourself like a humanitarian while you're doing this or to be honest about what you're doing and why you're doing it and the fact the movie never answers that question, I find, is is to its strength. I think. Yeah, because yeah. there's that line that he says, like you know, you know, these weren't these were good men. These were uh, what's the line? These were men of passion and all this sort of stuff. Like these were real men, and he, he like he talks about these guys that like hacked the men gym, of integrity, hacked, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, men of integrity and all this. Yeah, and it's like that's just how warped and divorced from reality or at least moral reality that Kurtz is and that he you know has spent too long in the jungle and he's just it's it's changed him but it's not even that it's changed him it's just it's stripped away all the the rank like he's no longer Colonel Kurtz anymore he's just Kurtz and that Mm. it's again the thing of like He's no winnowing. longer pretending in the way Kilgore is, even. Exactly. Even Kilgore is pretending, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's just winnowed Cowboy down. And, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. He's just winnowed down to this one person, like, you know? But, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we kind of mentioned that during the 70s, uh, that, like, Coppola didn't describe this as an anti-war movie. He described it as an anti-lie movie. And I think, like, that's kind of what he means when he says it's an anti-lie movie. It's, it's a movie about the idea of the hypocrisy of kind of warfare and the hypocrisy of like the American intervention in Vietnam and that weird paradox you have where like the American government frowns on all these monstrous things being done by Kurtz and they are absolutely monstrous. But Kurtz then, you know, goes and points out that they'll also like, they'll dump agent orange on these populations. They'll firebomb these places. They'll destroy these places. But the idea is that Kurtz just doesn't have like the fig leaf of, you know, humanitarian or self-righteousness that defines like what the army is using to justify what it's doing and that that is kind of what makes him so villainous and so monstrous and such an existential threat to the american government that's why they want him to go i mean again we mentioned that the animal sacrifice sequence there's an argument that like the what that cutting kind of does what that edit does at the climax is that it makes the death of Kurtz feel like a sacrifice or a scapegoating where he is Mm. becoming this figure onto which we are dropping the sins of like the rest of the war simply because he is honest about the insanity of what he's doing rather than kind of covering up or pretending and and I guess then that's that's probably a good uh opportunity to talk about like Kurtz himself I mean 
Alex, I think you described, you know, Brando as possibly one of the finest actors of his generation, if not ever. What what, what do you make of Kurtz uh, in so, this movie? I've sort of said before, I think it's very hard to watch this film and be divorced from all of the fascinating stuff around this film. And I, even as a, the first time I saw this film, you know, you, you're aware. I think it's you're aware going into it that Brando is the sort of almost center point and he's the core that everything else is kind of just like um, orbiting. And it's fascinating how little he actually appears in it. And I think partly it's because it's a bit like Poochie whenever Kurtz isn't on screen, people should be talking about Kurtz, you know, um, (laughs) there is that like he's constantly going over his dossier um, and you see these, you know, pictures of young, handsome Brando at West Point and everything. And you're fascinated by this character. And I think it's just one of those extremely rare times where the buildup to something kind of completely works. Like, of course, he's this absolute sort of gigantic, terrifying, scary maniac who you never really fully see. And I actually think so much of that plays into the power of the character in the scenes. But I also think that it's impossible to not see it as Marlon Brando like there's there's famous um like Al Pacino talks about seeing Brando play I think Julius Caesar and talk about how it felt like somebody had opened a furnace on him in the cinema he was so like struck by Brando and that when he was doing the scene in The Godfather where he has to go in to the hospital bed he had a panic attack and Coppola's like what's wrong with you and he said you don't get it man that's Marlon Brando in there I can't just go in there so I think the casting of Brando and and famously he demanded a salary probably in the sort of like leave me alone Francis I'm not going to the Philippines unless you pay me a ridiculous figure and Coppola being like yeah sure okay great let's do that and then you have to actually yeah so I think that there's a bit of I don't want to say stunt casting but this is certainly kind of you know, an awareness of that power of Brando and and putting him in this role in this film um, and having all these incredible actors like Martin Sheen and Robert Duvall and Albert Hall and, you know, even Lawrence Fishburne and, and Harrison Ford in these smaller roles, but to have them all kind of orbiting and being drawn into this big black hole of Brando. And then the other sort of jazz stuff of, of course, Brando shows up as Coppola, like sensitively put it, he was fatter than the water buffalo. And I was thinking that's probably why he was sensitive that he shows up and you're like, why are you so fat? Um, and and having to shoot him in, you know, and, and as as you pointed out, Brian, that he's he's just wearing these like black pajamas that that works in the film because, of course, everything's stripped off. But like also probably because, oh, shit, he doesn't fit any of the costumes. Let's find um, yeah. some curtains or something and cut a head hole in it. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's incredible, um, and it's it's partly that kind of improvised what's happening. It's a huge part of the casting, but I think watching it again, you, you kind of almost have to forget some of that and just go with the power of those scenes. That he's he's so magnetic, and it is like that Pacino thing of like he, it's like you're opening a furnace and you're kind of in this scary, very deeply dark, disturbing presence um and there's not really a whole lot of performances like that where somebody's built up built up built up for nearly three hours and then you're actually like oh god he's here um this is and it yeah, matches, exactly what i was led to believe yeah. yeah yeah it almost exceeds exactly that's a good way of putting it yeah i always think of that photo like the, the kind of the last time you see um willard's dossier and it's just this picture of Kurt and he's silhouette, just standing like the, yeah the silhouette and he's almost kind of like standing like superman in a weird kind of way like He's like, he got his arms on his hips and he's like, you can just see the outline of him. And it's, 
it's this idea that like the shadow is about to take form and like Carmine Coppola's like real synth music is really like like oh fuck here he comes um but it's weird like because in that jerk in the sky yeah yeah but like in the redux i never actually never made that connection but now but the literally superman yeah yeah but like in the redux version though there's a scene with him and i think it's the one scene of Kurt that I like. I would, if, if it was me, I would have been like, no, take that out. Is when he confronts um, Willard in the sweatbox and all the kids are around him. And he's, re- it's the first time you actually see. Oh, he reads the life. Yeah, he reads the life magazine, isn't it? Yeah, he reads the life magazine. Yeah. And he just reads it to him. And he's very kind of like robotic about it almost. And I think that's in the Redux, and I don't think it's in the theatrical version. And to be honest, I can see why it was cut, because, you know, when you see Kurtz in the compound or whatever, you're always kind of seeing him in half-light, or you're seeing, like, just his forehead, or you're just seeing his face. And that kind of adds to the fact that he is this husk of a human being that's just, just existing, like, just, you know, on life support almost. Whereas when he confronts him at the sweatbox scene or whatever, you're seeing him and you see that he is, I don't know, like, I get it in the sense of like, it was very Manson-esque, you know, that kind of way. It was very like, this is what I believe, you know, here are all my children, uh, you know, I, I, I get that aspect of it, but I think it doesn't, not that it doesn't work, I just think that I can see why Coppola made the cut. And I think that's one of the things about the Redux is that when you watch it, you can see exactly why the cut was made like the french the french sequence brilliant as it is i totally get why it was cut out and you know i think it's telling that a lot of like that's the one scene i can think of in the whole kurt sequence that's put in in the redux and taken out from the theatrical and again i understand why it's in there and i understand why it was taken out but yeah i mean i think it's uh i think uh, just the way that brando plays it i think is so like Alex was saying, like it's so uh, magnetic, and it's you're just so taken in by it. And yeah, it's the very rare thing of everyone talking about him, and then when he appears, he actually lives up to the hype. Yeah, I mean, like we we talked about how this movie isn't really about Vietnam, but like one of the most terrifying things that I kind of came across in my research is like how much of Kurtz is from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Like, all, obviously, all the rest of the stuff is from like Hearts of Darkness and stuff, and again, the Vietnam plantation is out of time. But, like, you have stories of, like, how he's based on, like, again, we mentioned, like, Leon Rom, who was in the Congo, for example. Um, you have, like, people like Colonel Rialt. You have an uh, Tony Poe, um, who was an operative in there, who, like, you know, basically arrived with, like, M16s for a decade of ungoverned mayhem. Paying the Hmong per, per communist fatality, paying $1 per ear of victim, he later demanded heads as well. Like, when he, he used to drop led... heads, like, with bo- like, instead of bombs, like, would drop human heads like yeah he keep the famous ones pickled in jars with alcohol and would drop the rest as like a psychological warfare campaign and it's like this is the kind of stuff that you're watching you're thinking this has to be exaggerated kurtz has to be some sort of like the most cartoonish version of this imaginable but it's it's frankly terrifying where like apparently like americans sent like americans sent two assassins to kill Tony Poe. They sent like a Laotian and an American, and Poe survived both attacks but lost two fingers, defusing a booby trap that was set by the Americans as well. And you have like again, like he was court martialed in 1969 by the U.S. Army after he was accused of killing a Vietnamese guide who he believed to be a double agent. It's hard to keep track of all these like 
absolute yeah. ghouls. All the yeah. horrible atrocities, yeah. Horrible atrocities. There we go. It's the, yeah, so it, it's Poe who set up home in Bangkok fighting with the locals and was, like, arrested in the early 90s by the Thai police who managed to export him back to San Francisco. And we're, like, he gave TV interviews. Like, before... He just retired. Like, he just yeah. set up in California for the next, like, oh, yeah, I'll just, yeah. and he freely admitted this stuff. Settled down, yeah. apparently worked with the Department of Veteran Affairs, helping veterans, being like, well, if you think you saw some stuff, wait till I tell you what I did. Like, truly, uh, just like whenever you look into the depths of American military, um, this, the, you know, the, the, just, just horrors that they it's it's always much worse than you could ever have imagined. And, and to your point, Darren, like when people say, oh, Apocalypse Now is a bit over the top. Actually, no, it turns out that the, the reality was uh, infinitely um, more ghoulish than anything that Coppola or that maniac Milius could come up with. Like, ooh. And like as well, the I was just going to say, just like the Belgian Congo thing like that, you know, yeah. the whole thing about they, they lopped off arms and all the rest of it. Like you can see why Coppola read Hearts of, read Hearts of Darkness and thought, oh yeah, this is the Vietnam War. Like you can see the connection very, very clearly. Like, mm. yeah. I mean, like, the TV interview that, like, again, Poe gave in September 2000. Like, war is hell, and if you're gonna do it, let's do it with gusto. Unshaven and hungover, he speaks of sending disembodied ears to nervous U.S. ambassadors as if it was a schoolyard prank, and explains that his mission failed because, and I quote, we didn't kill enough people, which is like a nightmarish echo of Kurt's, like, we must kill them all, pig after pig, cow after cow, village after village. Like, it's... Watching the movie is nightmarish, and then like digging into the history and discovering that no, somehow that is like at worst accurate and at you know at, at best accurate and at worst like a tame like a, a somewhat like sanitized watered down version. version. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but and- Andrew, what about yourself? Do you have any takes on like Brando and Kurtz? No, no, I, 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 I think um, it's a funny thing because you, 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 you kind of. Um, almost want to kind of criticize uh, uh, Brando for his approach, but that it works, you know? Mm. Where, well, where, it gives, where, you, it gives you the end result. Is it? Yeah, ex- 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 exactly. Where, where, where it's kind of like, um, it's very low effort, um, but, but it's, it, it, it feels kind of perfect. What the movie needs. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it exactly, yeah. And that, that's what I mean about it. I think if it had been a more professional production, you wouldn't have got this. You know, you mm. you kind of almost need that the, the, that level of even Coppola, who talks about how Martin Sheen's wife lost it at him after the mirror scene because, you know, Martin Sheen came home gibbering and covered in blood, um, having punched himself in the mirror. But apparently how he got there was Coppola sort of had him stare at himself and just shouted at him like, you know, you're a failure. Look at you. You're just some handsome idiot, you know, until he punches. And then you, we, and we get the literally the scene that um, that results is the scene at the start where, where he punches the glass and cuts his hand open and covers himself in blood. Uh, at which point, like Coppola still only a few years ago was saying, yeah, I got what I needed, you know. Yeah. And, and what, you know. I remember as well, that was like Martin Sheen's birthday, I think, or something like that. <laughs> and they had like a little, yeah, it's in Hearts of Darkness. Even they have like a little birthday party for him and they give him a little cake. It's like, right. OK, Martin, here you're going to have a full nervous breakdown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time for your nervous <laughs> breakdown. 
Let's go. Hit it. We didn't <laughs> know how many candles to put on it. Um, <laughs> his wife left him as well. Yeah. Um, like, he talks yeah, about as... the, the uh, reason that he survived his heart attack was, you know, he, he, he kind of died at the, or didn't die. He, he had a heart attack at the end of the road from his house. Yeah. But that his brain was so broken, he started eating clumpfuls of dirt. And he sort of says there was something so unnatural about that that he actually credits eating handfuls of soil and and as the the reason he survived almost as if his body was like well hang on hold the phone heart exploding we've stomach has to now process all these pebbles yeah and i remember thinking like okay but what frame of mind have you been like oh god my heart time to eat clumpfuls of soil like and then was back at work two weeks later after his crazy (laughs) brother stood in for him Oh boy, oh, yeah. Joe I mean, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is it is worth just acknowledging in terms of like the the the, the sheenness of it. Again, you go through the seventies and eighties. I find it fascinating that like Sheen reinvents himself as this wholesome like America's dad. What if Bill Clinton was the bestest president ever? Character that my gran watches every week, and I'm like watching like Apocalypse now, and he's just like, what if we killed them all? Yeah. What if we killed everyone? Or Badlands, like. Like Badlands yeah. is the one I always go to. Yeah. It's like, like he was literally like shooting people, and like it's like, and now it's like, oh, he's President Bartlett. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, I love him. And even like in Wall Street as well, like he was very much like the working class man kind of thing. You know, like yeah. you know the American American backbone kind of thing, like the working yeah. stiff or whatever. And it's like four years ago, like you're in the jungle. I think in the Departed as well. Yeah, similar it's just, kind of wholesome character. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Like yeah. it, it, and again, I think of like my grand's love of CSI with William Peterson, who's this adorable old man who like likes bugs or something. And it's like I read like reading stories about what it was like to work with Peterson on like uh, is it to live and die in L.A. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or Manhunter and Manhunter. Manhunter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, yeah, it's just so fascinating that like you have this rehabilitation onto Brando. Like it is worth just noting that like um, again, Tom Sean, really great film critic. Uh, I'll include the article in the show notes, but he makes the point that like. You know, great screen actors generally only have two performances in them, a version of themselves and an inversion of themselves. Modifying Mm -hmm. that for the psychoanalytically inclined method, we might say that Brando's two great roles were himself and his father, an ex-army engineer turned salesman who beat his son and enrolled him at the local military academy in an attempt to instill some discipline in the boy. As they say, good luck with that. Brando played a military man eight times in his career, culminating in Colonel Kurtz, as if exploding his father's authority from within like an ingested grenade. I do find it interesting that, like, this is... Those photos of Brando are obviously, like, Brando's earlier roles as more straight-laced military men. It's kind of fascinating that his career on screen kind of reaches the point where he's just playing this parody, almost, or this kind of, like, this cartoonish, larger-than-life, the most military man who ever existed. It's it's fascinating. Mm. And we should note as well that, like, Brando, obviously, you know, less active uh, when you get into the 90s and 2000s, but still concerned about the movie. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, when he released Redux, he apparently has no contact with Brando, like, nobody during that time had any contact with Brando. Um, He said, I wrote Brando a letter, but he's hard to get. Then he called me when I was somewhere else. He wanted to know what I had done, and he was concerned that we hadn't put in too much Kurtz, because like Orson Welles in The Third Man, you can only use a little bit of that kind of mysterious character. And he's still thinking about his entrance. How's my entrance, he asked me. I assured him his entrance was still good. Yeah. Fascinating. Like, again, it's it's kind of fascinating that even all these years later, he's like, no, I'm still protective uh, of that role. I love that. I love that, because like, I do think like as much as people like, 
kind of made jokes about Marlon Brando and his later years and all the rest of it. Like, I think it was kind of, I think, you know, I struggle to think of any other role that Brando did after Apocalypse Now that had the same level of impact. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, 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 okay, fine. Maybe like the Superman two, was that 1981? Was it? Or no, that was 70. That, that was 81. Yeah. 79, 79 was, or was it 79 or 78 was Superman? Yeah. And was 1881, I think was Superman two, well, depending Superman. on like where you lived in the world. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. And then like, I mean, you know, the only thing I could put, put even close to this would be, um, the Island of Dr. Moreau. And that's no, that's a stretch. Which is very I, close conceptually, in that like yes. going to a faraway place and making a movie with Marlon Brando and having it turn into a nightmare for everybody involved. Exactly, that's what I mean. Conceptually similar, realistically, you know, in the in the in the making or in the the end result, not at all. But conceptually, it felt very similar. But yeah, no, I I love that that he's so protective of it. Like I really do think that's. That speaks. I I do think that speaks to how much of an artist that he really was. That he actually gave a shit, you know, thirty years after the fact. Like you look at somebody like John Carpenter, who I love deeply and have interviewed, and like I remember confronting him on this. Is like, why do you keep allowing people to make fucking shitty remakes of like? Yeah, that was it. And he was. That's exactly what he said. Like the money. I could just open my hand. Someone will put a big huge check of money in it. I can close it and go back to watching basketball. My film yeah. is still there. People want to go check out the original. They can do that. If they they can go off and make whatever they want. I just want the money and I don't want to have to deal with any of this. And my film is still there. Controversially, I have a huge amount of sympathy for Carpenter with that. Because Carpenter's a guy yeah. who got screwed over. Where he never he never got that money in the first place. Like, mm. when he was making these movies, nobody was giving him money for them. So I'm yeah. like, exactly. if it's coming to you, take it. You know? Exactly. No, that's it. And I'll I, never I, watch The Fog. No, yeah, totally. And like, I mean, I, I, I that's maybe that's a bad example. But like... I appreciate the fact that, you know, that he still care that Brando still cares, whereas Carpenter was kind of like, shit, I need to get paid here. Okay, like, so yeah. just and, make whatever you want and, there. Just send me the money, like. And he did the music on him and didn't get Yeah, paid. true, yeah. He, so, like, he, yeah. him and his son twiddle around with it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, you know, it's, he's, he's, he's doing well. But I think, yeah, I think Brando, I think the fact that he still cares, I think, is indicative of how seriously he took the work, even though he did turn up overweight and not knowing any of the lines like i mean you watch those scenes like he gives a shit like it's clear that he is working it out like and doing something with it like and 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 is making something worthy of you know all this legend around it you know yeah um all right then so the end of the movie because I, I this is something i wonder about myself and i don't know there's an answer to but i want to throw it open to the group the ending of the movie where willard goes off into the river where does he go? What happens next? Like, what is like? Is this a happy ending? Is this a sad ending? Is it just an ending? Does it matter? Do we? Well, have to he think? he never. We know that he never uh, goes on another mission. Yes, he does say that at the end. So I never it, want another no, one. No, but that he says that at the beginning. Sorry, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I would never. When it was or, done, I'd never want yeah, another one. He. Um. And by the way, I, I think the the voiceover is quite good. Which yeah, was a late edition, good. wasn't it? Written by um the director of dispatches. Michael Hayes. Yeah, yeah. Michael. Yeah. It's very poetic. Yeah. And also very efficient as well. Like it does well delivered. Yeah, and um, it's it's got a retrospective quality to it that kind of builds into this like storytelling of like let me tell you the time I met Mister Kurtz. Like it, it does kind of, and it it it's very like in some ways the 
um, Heart of Darkness, the, the original book, which is is similarly like a weird mix of almost a sort of journalistic dispatch of like, but also has all these heightened elements in it and everything. So yeah, I I think the voiceover, and I don't usually love voiceover. I think it's done so well yeah. in this in this film. I mean, it does need a freeze frame at the start saying, I bet you're probably wondering how I got into yeah. this situation. <laughs> um, yeah, the freeze frame of him sitting on the ground crying, yeah. naked, covered in blood. <laughs> but um, that's like, Brian, me. What, what do you make of? Yeah, I like he. I I I think he he went back to America, and was not quite the same, but tried to kind of get on with things. I so think. you think that he he did what Kurt suggested, which is he went home and told Kurt's son everything. And yeah, like, got I on do. With his life. I do. I think yeah. it's like that, uh, you know, the Pope guy, the CIA guy, I think he probably went home and settled in a, a farm and didn't think about the, you know, the horror that um, he did. And I think part of it is, is when we were talking about Willard, he's like a, a homing pigeon. He's given a mission at the start and that's what he does. And if he has to shoot a child who was defending her puppy in order to do that, yeah, not a problem. And, you know, he has that as you said, that moment where after he's killed him and he's looking across this kingdom that is his for the taking, uh, completely his for the taking, but he doesn't have that capacity. And it's not a good thing, I think. Like, to be clear, like neither of these ideas or end goals are, are remotely good or bad. <laughs> I think it's much more like the, the, the mission. He's a drone. He's the American military. He's like, mission done, go home find a wife you know yeah I, I think your your point about good and evil is is a good one and it's kind of interesting to think about like this as like we mentioned at the end of new hollywood the kind of like a shifting point in in hollywood history where like marlon brando you know the previous year had played superman's dad that icon of like all american virtue and you had like obviously you know you have like the character of Lucas, who's a reference to George Lucas, played by Harrison Ford, who was in George Lucas's American Graffiti, and obviously his Star Wars as well. But, like, the fact that in that scene with Lucas, you have the American, like, military apparatus selling Willard this load of horse crap about, you know, there's a battle between good and evil inside every man, and contrary to what we might want to believe, the better angels of one's nature, as Lincoln described them, do not always persevere. Mm. And you have this idea that, like, it, it's almost like Coppola is like spoofing the sort of storytelling that Lucas would employ in Star Wars, where you have yeah. like the light side and the dark side and the light side triumphs and the dark side fails and all this sort of stuff. And and in fact, like Apocalypse Now is no, it's it's all messy. It's all terrible. It's all awful. There is no triumph of goodness here. There is no virtue. There is no right side to this quagmire in which you find yourself. There's just varying degree, degrees of insanity and, and depravity. Um, that, that said, I do think perhaps, like, the one decent thing um, to, to go all, like, Tom Sizemore and Saving Private Ryan, the one decent thing uh, that they manage to do, or that Willard manages to do over the course of the movie, is maybe, like, saving Lance. Like, when he's leaving, he makes a point to go and pick Lance out of the crowd and take him with him as he goes down the river. Yeah. And, and you know, of course, by that point, like, Lance has completely lost his mind and is completely insane. There's a debate about to what extent you can save Lance, or there, there's any Lance left to save. 
But I do think that's that's like the one moment, the one decent choice but, uh, maybe that Willard makes over the course of like the entire movie. That's what I was going to say. Like at that, this was the first time I was watching and I was like, I don't know. Maybe you should also like like Lance isn't. Yeah, that, that's not a, a good ending off. for Lance. But it, it's so much more interesting, I think, when you think about it as well and, and watching with the commentary Coppola's talks about how he had paid a hundred K of for explosives to blow up the whole temple because the government required them to like clear everything. And he did. And, you know, in early versions in that truly insane Coppola way where he assumes everyone will understand exactly what he means. He, he ran yeah. the footage, you know, where the credit sequences would normally go and people that were like, Oh, so I guess Willard called in a bombing and run and blew everyone yeah, yeah, up. Yeah. And Coppola got annoyed and was like, no, obviously not, and, uh, and cut it. <laughs> but again, that's that's I think that's such a fascinating idea that you could have this incredible big over-the-top Hollywood ending of like explosions and fire and actually decide, no, 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 the ending is him drifting away, literally just drifting away and no credits, you know. He actually, apparently, the, the writing Apocalypse Now on the wall... Um, that's actually a copyright law thing, he said, because someone oh. said in order to have that claim, the claim, you need it somewhere in the film. And he's like, well, obviously, I'm not doing any credits. So he scrawls it to the point where you can actually see a little C sign and like circled. Amazing. Which uh, and again, if you look closely underneath, you can see like the title card number at the U.S. Yeah. Patent Office. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, genuinely, that's that's the level that that, that they were operating at, operating at. So yeah, I love the ending. I think it's the perfect ending for the the film. I wouldn't want it any other way. I want to ask Brian about the ending in a moment, but just you mentioned the explosions at the end and like this weird thing where Coppola's like, they're not part of the movie. Uh, they're not, you know. But the thing with that is that the reason why those explosions are in the movie is he shot it because he had no idea what the ending was going to be. Um, and obviously they had all those explosive techniques. Um, but he basically, and again, this is a Coppola quote from August 1979. We are like at peak high on his own supply where he was like, what I actually want is I want to get the 35 millimeter prints of this movie to go into release in October. And that costs money and financing and stuff like that. So apparently, and this is a quote directly from him. The distributors from Japan and Germany got together with the distributor from Italy. The Axis powers, let's call them. And they all wanted the picture to end with explosions, Mr. Coppola sighed. There are a lot of practical concerns when you make a movie, so I said, give me the 35mm prints and I'll put explosions under the end titles. I kind of love that that was the artistic compromise, where it's yeah. like, if you pay for the printing of the movie, I'll put in explosions, even though they have no relevance to the plot, and I'll just assume the audience will understand that I'm just showing you explosions because you wanted explosions. But Brian, what do you make of the ending of the movie? No, yeah, like, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I, I watched, I, I actually watched that ending, the explosions ending of it. And it's weird. I can see, like thematically i can kind of get it it's like it's the end of willard's war and now everything is going to be burnt away and blown up and all the rest of it and you know yeah sure you could look at it and think oh so he called in arc light and he blew the whole thing up but it's also like no he's just leaving it behind but yet when it cuts to dark and there's no noise and it's just boom like oh shit then it's really like oh god now i'm left with the horror now i'm left with the silence now it's like you know the explosions are still ringing in your ear and that's almost more terrifying than seeing all this fire and explosions in the jungle you know um i love the ending though i absolutely love that ending i love the fact that it just cuts right to dark and you're just left alone and 
you have to go off and process it now. And I think that's so smart because, you know, as cool as the big explosions are and Carmine Coppola's score is that really ethereal, scary, like, like the, like it's horrible. Like, but the cut to dark is just so effective. And I think for a film that is so maximalist to end on such a, is so smart, like so clever. Um, all right. Is there anything else you want to talk about with me? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? I know Andrew has copious notes two times over um, in blue and, and black ink as well. So you could tell he's done his own <laughs> redux on his uh, Apocalypse Now. No, that's just me adding the second set of notes to the first set of notes. Um, uh, no, 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 not really anything um, more to add. I think we have kind of discussed it a lot in terms of nonsense. We do every week. I mentioned some already. But the inappropriate smoking is smoking in bed and also smoking in heavy rain. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. One of my favorite cuts in the movie, I may have laughed out loud while I was watching it with you last night, is like at the end of the movie, Willard is obviously tortured by um, Kurtz and stuff where he's like, he's put in the box and he's like, he's locked up and his hands are tied. And there's a moment where, and again, this gets into the like weird ethereal Kurtzness where Kurtz just presents the head of chef to him. And mm. throws it to him. And like the way in which that shot, you're meant to be like, did Kurtz do it himself? Did Kurtz have somebody do it for him? Is Kurtz still a ninja? Because mm. you have like the moment where like Chef goes in to call in the radio. And apparently that is the moment where he gets murdered, even though you can't see anything going on. It's wonderful and ethereal and haunting. Uh, but there's the moment Just after. Doesn't he have the camouflage on? Don't yeah. we see him? Yeah, I, I, I assumed it was back, Kurtz. Yeah. yeah. I assumed yeah. it was yeah. Kurtz that did it. Yeah. Yeah, shows his feet Brando. walking in the rain, doesn't he? It's just, you don't get the impression, <laughs> as you say, he'd be much of a ninja sneaking up. Yeah. He's a, a lithe cat. He just, like, slips in. And, he's like the, the glimmer man. He's got this big Steven Seagal. <laughs> Steven Seagal, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All you see is a glimmer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's too late. Um, if you can see Kurtz, you're... You're, your it's too late yeah. <laughs> yes if you can't see Kurtz your only moments <laughs> from death but like I mean there is but the, the point I was going to make there is that like they go from that moment where uh, Martin Sheen is like being tortured outside in the rain with his friend's like dead head in his lap and the next cut is to him sitting down smoking a cigarette just like mm. like processing it in this stone temple Um, it's it's again it, I think that smoking counts as inappropriate Mm. It does seem like it's like if you were in that situation, would smoking be a priority? Would you be like, I have a cigarette I think now? He just enjoys a cigarette. And, and how fair. are they even uh-huh. getting their cigarettes? I suppose if there was a situation like you're saving your ten cigarettes for when you really need them, I suppose, yeah. It's so clear. Is, it's actually so clear that none of you were ever smokers. I was a smoker for like. <laughs> I only I only quit smoking like four or five so, years ago. So you, I was. It's very clear that Darren was. Fair, fair yeah, point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You absolutely. If someone hands you a chopped off head, the first thing you're like, Jesus, cigarette. I need a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> like it's so like, like I can't believe that's so appropriate. Having a cigarette after being handed okay, a, okay, a human okay. head, you there's definitely never, need a cigarette. Okay, let me I mean, just. I'm not saying it would be. I'm not saying it wouldn't be. I'm just saying there's never the any point where you're like, oh, I can't smoke at a time like. Like this. <laughs> this 
This is the wrong time for a signature. Yeah, it's always the right time. Um, this episode is sponsored by. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but like, there is like to, to that two fifty trope of the cigarettes. Like, there is that recurring motif of the cigarettes, where the cigarettes are kind of handed and passed, and you can see them going throughout the movie. Characters are handing cartons of cigarette, negotiating cartons of cigarettes, mm. passing them. Like the moment where Dennis Hopper like grabs the cigarettes off Chef, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. he's like so excited to have them. They become this marker of, as Brian said, like imperialism. Like it's yeah. that American reach. It's like yeah, yeah. If you can get it's it's that thing where you're you're never more than like fifty meters away from a coke statistically yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. I like that cigarettes are kind of part of that. But but Alex, is there anything else you want to say? Anything we haven't discussed already about the movie? And jumping out. Of um, I was I was I was going to probably save it for the recommendations section at the end. But um, I think one of the things a few people have said about this film is is that it doesn't necessarily incorporate the Vietnamese or Cambodian experience, uh, which is true. I also think though it's not it's hard for me to imagine it working if it sort of did you know like I said the first half of the film is much more centered on Vietnam as a a conflict and I think that's part of the point and it's a very Coppola thing to be like well no because the American military wasn't really centering the Vietnam Vietnamese experience they they weren't they were murdering these people they were invading them for you know reasons around vaguely stemming the flow of communism and dominating the world from America. So I, I kind of think it's perfectly fair to um, sort of say, oh, it, it, it's a film set in a country that doesn't really ever engage with the wider story of that country. Absolutely true. But I also don't think it it's the appropriate format for it either because of the kind of film it is and the kind of story it's telling. But as a counter to that, there's a, a good novel called The Sympathizer, by yes. um, Viet Thanh Young um, that I read a good few years ago. And it's, it's kind of, there's a whole sequence on it where the main yes. character is Vietnamese is almost like working on one of these insane American Vietnamese films. And it's very well done. Um, I think A24 might be making a film of it now um, or a series or something. That, so looking forward to that. But I'd, I'd recommend that um, book. And I think it's a, an interesting kind of, not full rejoinder to Apocalypse Now, but... Um, yeah, a very interesting perspective. Yeah, I think it's past and future guest of the show, uh, Joe Griffin, who kind of makes the point that there is something just a little bit uncomfortable in like the wave of these Vietnam movies that are very much about how the experience of going overseas and killing all of these people was really traumatic for like American soldiers. Um, yeah. And again, obviously, you can you can make that argument about a lot of the American war movies about like Iraq and Afghanistan as well. But it, it, it I think I think that's a very fair point. That said, without wanting to kind of dismiss it, I, I do think that there there is a fair acknowledgement of the reality that, like, this is a very American-centric gaze and that, like, Coppola is aware of the fact that, like, this is not a pleasant experience for the Vietnamese, that the Vietnamese are being sidelined in their own story. You have, like, those shots of, you know, obviously you've got the boat, but you mentioned that shot earlier of, like, the Vietnamese looking in, like, from the fence at the USO show. You have mm. them, like, being knocked down while doing their washing by, like, the water skiing kind of, you know, GIs and all this sort of stuff. Like, there is, I think, some sense of like how uncentered the Vietnamese are within their own narrative. Mm. I, you know, I don't want to give Coppola too much credit for it, but I do, I do think that it is there to be fair. Yeah. And like, yeah, it, it's funny that you should mention like the sympathizer by Nguyen. Cause actually I, I had some quotes in my notes from him mm. uh, where he talks about like writing that novel um, and how like apocalypse now was a movie that was very important to me. I think I saw it when I was 10 or 11 years old, one of the early movies I saw on a VHR and it totally traumatized me. 
My voice would shake even ten years later describing a scene from the movie where the sailors massacre a sandpan full of Vietnamese civilians. On the one hand, it's an incredible work of art. I think I admire that film. On the other hand, it puts me in a very difficult situation as the Vietnamese person who gets killed in the movie. It's much better to be the villain and the anti-hero than to be the extra who gets killed. And that's what essentially is happening in American Vietnam War movies of the 1980s. Yes, they depict a very dark side of the American experience, but that also means they cast Americans as the central subjects of history. Yeah. And yeah, I, I do think that that's, that's entirely fair. Um, I, and I then think the, that's a very, very fair point to make. The other film I'd recommend is actually Spike Lee's um, film from a few years ago. Um, the Five Bloods. Five the Five Bloods, Bloods yeah, yeah, with, with Chadwick mm. Boseman. And again, like there's a really wonderful Spike Lee dolly shot at the start where you have these four or five Vietnamese veterans in a club called Apocalypse Now. And they're yeah. all like doing this brilliant little sort of shimmy dance together uh, through the dance floor. And... I remember reading an interview and someone was like, wow, that's that's a really surreal thing to have. These like five people who were actually in Vietnam arrive back to Vietnam and, and explore their history and then realize that Apocalypse, there's an, a nightclub called Apocalypse Now where and they're, they're all dancing together. And Spike Lee literally was like, yeah, I, there is a nightclub called Apocalypse Now. Uh, I just went there and saw that and filmed it. That wasn't something I had to like write or create, <laughs> which again goes back to what I was talking about and, and that idea that our public consciousness around Vietnam is almost sort of inexplicably tied to this film forever and will always be. Um, but I would recommend that. That's another very interesting, very different um, Vietnamese film, which also, uh, I'm sorry, a Vietnam film, film about the Vietnam War, hits some of the same beats as Apocalypse Now. It's got some of those things, things like the dastardly French, the um, the idea of not really ever being able to escape the surreal horror of it all, but done in a very interesting spikely way. So I'd, I'd also recommend that one. Yeah, I mean... And any... any um, will, 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 we, will, we, I, I, will we move on to recommendations? Okay. Sorry, um, I probably kind of hijacked that, making that... No, 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 no. I, I, I think it's about time as well. Yeah, the, okay. Um, all right, so Brian, would you recommend anything? What would you recommend? I will be a little bit odd. I will recommend a video game. Um, there's a video game called Spec Ops: The Line, and it's this. You no, know, it's a game set in kind of like the Iraq War, and you play. It's based completely on Apocalypse Now and Hearts of Darkness and all the rest of it. But what's interesting about the game is, is that um there are different points in the game where you have to make a choice where you can shoot somebody or not shoot somebody now i know that's kind of a bit binary but you have to remember in the context of the video game that's pretty huge um but there are there are certain scenes where you know you can use white phosphorus or not use white phosphorus or you can uh, let somebody live like a, you can capture somebody and you can let them go or you can shoot them to make sure that they don't warn anybody and all the rest of it like it takes beats from apocalypse now and even the, the the big baddie of the game, his name is General Conrad, which is obviously to Joseph Conrad and all the rest of it. Like it's very much Apocalypse Now, but it was a video game. And what I love about the game is, is that at the end of it, it shows you everything. It shows you all the choices you made. And then you're shown, actually, no, there wasn't these people rushing over the, the wall to get at you. It was people running away from you and you were shooting them as they were going. It's really dark. And like, there's even a, like when you confront uh, General Conrad at the end, and this is a spoiler for the game, you realize that he's actually been dead the entire time and that the person that you were communicating with was yourself, that it's a kind of a fight club kind of thing. 
and it's a it's a it's a fantastic game it's so it's one of the smartest games story-wise i've ever i've ever played and i think it does kind of fold into a lot of the themes that apocalypse now kind of does but it puts you in the perspective you're making the choice you have the agency and i think you know we were talking about how willard is you know this very passive person and he's just like going along being an automaton and in a lot of like a lot of video games, a lot of like first person shooters, you are an automaton, you're on rails, you're just shooting everything on screen. And you're never kind of given a chance to examine actually why did you do that? You could have let that person live and you didn't. And Spec Ops the line is the only game I can think of that it comes to the end of the game and it's like, No, you're actually a terrible person. You killed all those people. You did this, you know, you set that city on fire and you could have just let them live. So you're going to have to go deal with that now in the same way that Apocalypse Now, when it cuts to black, you're like, oh, Christ, you've got to go process this now. And I think it's very, it's very, obviously, it's very similar in terms of themes and, and structure. But I think thematically, the idea of violence as a part of humanity is something that's focused on in this game and I think is focused on Apocalypse Now. It's interesting, actually, because a few years ago, Coppola tried to do that, like, John Carpenter move of being like, I'm actually going to make a Apocalypse Now video game. It and would have been terrible. Asked for, like, a million on Kickstarter, which, again, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola, that's not really the way that... But, yeah, and it didn't work. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. No. Yeah. And, I mean, no. to be fair, like, Spec Ops line is basically, what if Apocalypse Now, but in the Iraq War? And it's brilliant, and it's it's... I, I can see why they didn't make the game of Apocalypse Now because I think this game does it and does it so well. And I'd recommend it to anybody. Like, you, I think you can get it on... Um, I think you can play it on PC. It was an Xbox Steamer, game, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Steam or whatever. But it's brilliant. It's so worth playing. So it's Spec Ops. Spec Ops The Line, it's called. Um, all right. And Andrew, what would you recommend? Um, you mentioned his Martel Cordon Bleu um, in terms of a cognac typo. I love uh, Remy Martin uh, VSOP. The smell, the taste, the kind of frosted green uh, bottle, the 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 box it comes in. Um, it, it's 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 a very kind of like a special drink for somebody to try it, and then it might be like their birthday kind of drink, maybe or their Christmas drink. I don't know. Uh, but or they, you've just had a nervous breakdown after punching your exactly, own reflection in a mirror yeah, drink. Yeah, yeah, yes. Treat yourself. <laughs> You're having a nervous breakdown. Have have a have a um, yeah. And I haven't tried the the Martel Cordon Bleu. Um, maybe that's next. Um, in terms of uh, Wagner's ring cycle, I can't recommend that. Um, your just, famous just, line is that the least bad art is getting shorter. I think it's your very. Well, I, I think it's 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 going to go the other way now. I think um, with movies getting longer, but but um, I I recommend. Cocaine Bear is a nice eighty five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I'd 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 recommend in terms of operas, um, uh, Philip Glass's Akhenaten. It's about the the pharaoh and the kind of um, the whole idea of monotheism but also the idea of kind of history kind of washing things away and things that were once kind of important and grand and magnificent um kind of disappearing um and um on on the opera team and on the jungle um uh, Fitzcarraldo um uh, I'd, I'd, I'd I'd recommend the the Ver, Ver, Werner Herzog 
Um, another kind of crazy undertaking with a, in a with, jungle. Yeah, mm. with a 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 wild um, production uh, story. Yeah, yeah, and and um, um, uh, uh, main actor as as well in 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 Klaus Kinski, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I'd recommend that. It's it, it's um it's a good watch. And this was, I think, inspired by Guerrero Wrath of God as well, actually. So it comes full circle in terms of of references. Yeah, yeah, no, I've seen Aguirre Wrath of God as well. I'd, 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 I'd probably recommend that too, but um, but definitely um, Fitzcarraldo also. Um, in terms of recommendations for myself, earlier in the podcast we had this big discussion about like Coppola staking his own money and why that makes this somewhat different from many of the new Hollywood follies where the studios were just writing checks and waiting to see if they would cash or bounce. Um, I think that the there is a director who does that recently. I don't think his movies are fantastic, but I love George that he Lucas. does. What? <laughs> Not George Lucas. Not George. Well, does, I suppose George Lucas kind of counts. He does, yeah. He is an independent filmmaker. Yes, at that scale. Yeah. Just one of the richest men alive. Uh, but M. Night Shyamalan, uh, very famously after the failure of, like, is it After Earth and Last Airbender and stuff like that, basically began financing his own movies by, like, mortgaging his house repeatedly. Um, and I, I don't love those movies, but I am glad that they exist. And he has the same thing that, again, that Coppola has, which is complete creative freedom. Like, he's making these movies and nobody is telling him that, like, the, the beach where you get old or the beach that makes you old is a bad idea. He's just like, look, I'm paying for the movie. I'm making the movie. You could distribute it or not. That's the take it or leave it thing. And I kind of admire that. So I went back and I rewatched his filmography. Much of it is terrible. Uh, but I did I love it. I saw that you were watching After Earth, all right. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, After Earth is a masterpiece, clearly. Um, After Earth is a fascinating psychodrama about a a father trying to turn his son into a movie star and the son not wanting to be a movie star. (laughs) Like, it's this wonderful portrait of, like, the Smith family as a unit. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I loved uh, Unbreakable. Get his family out of your fucking mouth, there. What? (laughs) Get get Will Smith's family out of your fucking mouth. Oh, thank you, Andrew. (laughs) Um, He has strong feelings about this. No, I think... I think I think it's like one thing that he will never do again. Uh, so like, I'm, I'm safe. We, is what in you're year, years from now, we won't talk about. Yeah, there was the first slap. <laughs> Surprised <laughs> everyone. Um, sorry. Yeah, it's just the great slap. We'll just call it the great slap. Um, all right then. So if listeners are looking for a bit more Brian, a bit more Alex online, watch out where you're up to. So Brian, watch out. Where can we find you? What you doing? Um, yeah, Twitter. Uh, Brian M. Lloyd. Uh, Entertainment.ie. Uh, Ireland AM. If you're watching TV at that hour in the morning, I don't know. Won't be going talking about apocalypse now, but whatever. Um, and Instagram. Uh, Brian M. Lloyd. So yeah, all over the place. And Alex, what about yourself? I'm still you? on Twitter, but like that's you know coming crashing down around everyone. True. I'd imagine Elon Musk is yeah going Colonel Kurtz in his own way. So um, yeah, I'll probably have to start really. a Letterboxd or something soon because I really only use it for film-based stuff. Um, but I, I'm still on Twitter at the moment at Alex Towers. Um, no ease, right? Yeah, that's it. All right, and you can follow the podcast at At The 250. We're on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and iTunes, wherever good podcasts can be found. Uh, next week is April Fool's Day, so I think like a couple of people have guessed what we're doing. We're going to put our hands up. We're going to say we are going to be talking about the first Child's Play film. Uh, people seem to think that we're going to be talking about all of them. We don't have time to give eight weeks to them, so don't get your hopes up. We're doing Child's Play next week because Andrew wanted to watch the original 1988 Chucky film. Uh, and then, obviously, it's going to be business as usual after that. So you can check us out in a fortnight, and uh, we'll see you then. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Thank guys. Thank you so much. Guys. Cheers, Thanks guys. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.